This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men. You are the renaissance. Hello, my name is Will Spencer and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. Have you ever met someone where you just feel like they speak your language? No, I don't mean English, French, or Japanese. I mean the language of values, of morality, and of perspective. When someone is, quote, speaking our language, what we're really saying is that we've met someone who sees the same things we do, thinks similar thoughts about them, and uses the words we'd use to express them. As many people as we all know, and as many friends as we all have, this is still a precious and rare experience. Which is why I'm thrilled to have met a man who speaks my language. His name is Brandon Schmidt, and he runs the popular Instagram account Masculine Revival. I'd come across his posts with his rich aesthetic and thoughtful, honest words about living a traditional life, and to me he seemed like a guy whose brain I'd like to pick about the subjects that obviously interest both of us. So I reached out and started a conversation, and discovered that he and I have more in common than I could have known. Brandon comes from two worlds that I'm familiar with, the New Age community and men's transformative brotherhoods. I grew into and out of both, and I thought I was alone. Well, it turns out that I'm not. Brandon has been on a similar journey of discovering the power of inner healing, being healed, and then asking, now what? And then he found a new world to explore, like many of us have. That world is traditionalism, which is what brought he and I together in the first place. So now here we are, having walked similar roads to a similar worldview and sharing similar modes of self-expression. Like I said, we speak each other's language. And speak we did. Over the course of our two and a half hour conversation, we discussed the difference between functional and fulfilling relationships, cultivating traditional values in the dating world, the narcissism of the New Age religion, men's work, why it's important, and why it's not, quote, gay to feel genuine love for other men, and finally, his moving story of being abandoned in childhood by his father, when and how they met, and what happened after. This is one of the most important conversations I've had so far. I think many men will see themselves reflected in Brendan's story and hear familiar themes in the discussion that we share. And for those men who don't recognize themselves in us, who perhaps come from different or stronger backgrounds, I hope you'll see more clearly some of the burdens carried by your brothers and the roads that we've walked to stand beside you in this renaissance of men and masculine revival. It's my great pleasure to introduce a man I'm honored to call my friend and brother, Brandon Schmidt of Masculine Revival. Brandon, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. I've been looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to it also because I've really been enjoying your content on Instagram. And I think you have such a great blend of very insightful and powerful words and this really nice aesthetic going on with the images that you choose. You've really put something special together, I think. And I always, I always enjoy your content. So I've been looking forward to talking to you about it. 
Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. How did the Instagram account get started? Like, when did you start deciding, you know what, I'm going to start writing about this, uh, this stuff and putting it out to the public? Yeah, so it was actually last year in January, so 2020. And at the time, I was going through a pretty radical shift in, in my views about masculinity and just relationships in general. And I just wanted a place to kind of document my journey and my process and the things that I was learning about. Um, and at the time, actually, I was pretty political. Mm-hmm. So Masculine Revival 1.0 it was very politically minded and I was doing a lot of shit posting and sharing a lot of memes. And uh, I was actually getting a lot of flack for it in my personal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the summer of last year, I actually went away and did a, did a psychedelic journey with a couple of my friends. And I kind of realized the, the absurdity of just of doing what I was doing. Like I thought that I was going to, you know, create change through, mm-hmm. through doing what I was doing. But really I was just, I felt like I was affirming people who had my views and then pissing people off who didn't share my views and not a lot was really actually happening. And on that psychedelic journey, I can see that very clearly. Mm. So uh, I decided to leave the political side out of it, despite sometimes having the impulse to, to go there with the current events that are going on today. So what was the shift that you went through that triggered you to do the political posting initially? Well, I think I, I kept having encounters with very feminist women and also men that were quite feminized. The first time I came across feminism was about six years ago, five, six years ago. And uh, one of my best friends was just really, really into it. And he he has a wife who is African-American and she has a large Instagram following and she talks about patriarchy and white supremacy and all those kind of, you know, big topics. And uh, I, for, for whatever reason, when my, when my friend was, telling me about these things and I was kind of getting an intro into them. I just had a gut reaction that it just didn't, it just didn't feel good to me. It felt kind of gross. I was like, there's something off about this. And then I ended up dating a woman who was quite feminist as well. And one day I walked into a coffee shop and she was reading an article and I said, Oh, what are you reading? And I go and I sit down and it was, uh, the article was titled why your white tears don't matter. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's a really racist headline. And she's like, what do you mean? And I kept having these kind of encounters where it was like, I felt like I was like, people were seeing, people were saying that, like seeing reality through this, this lens. And I was seeing it through a completely different lens. And that's kind of where it started. I'm trying to imagine what that must be like, you know, to be dating someone who has those ideas and to, to say, well, that's a racist headline. And then to have them look back at you, this is someone you love to look back at you and say, what do you mean? And I've also internalized, I had internalized some of those, those ideas myself, but I was never walking around saying stuff like that or reading articles. It was just part of living in San Francisco was these ideas starting in around somewhere between 2013, 2014, were just in the air suddenly. And uh, so by the time I mm-hmm. leave San Francisco in 2016, it took me a process of un- uh, deprogramming myself while I traveled. I'm just imagining you in that coffee shop situation where you're just having this moment where it's like, who is this woman? And kind of, who am I in a way? Was, was that an accurate kind yeah. of definition? Yeah. Very much so. And I think for a number of years, I was kind of able to just avoid the topic. But then about two years ago, I was, uh, I was in a really close 
just friend platonic friendship with two different women and i was spending a lot of time with them and uh it was it was interesting because at that time in my life i had a lot of female friends and i was spending a lot of time with these women and the friendship kind of abru- abruptly ended and it really left me questioning uh can men and women even be friends mm. and that question led me to take a break from all of my female relationships and in that time i i committed to uh what's called monk mode so i went 90 days and it was like no porn no no alcohol no i just kind of cut everything out of my life i shaved my head i started going for you know 10 mile runs uh, that whole thing and i was just really focusing on getting into the into my warrior energy and uh in that time i really i actually decided that i i didn't want to have female friends anymore and i also decided that i wanted to commit to the path of becoming a father mm-hmm. Uh, because it was always for me, it was always a just a vague intention that I I loosely held on to that one day I would just stumble into fatherhood, mm-hmm. and I realized that I wasn't taking it seriously enough, and that I needed to actually start showing up in a different way in my life. That led me to start thinking, what is a good father, and and uh, how how do I lead a family effectively? And those questions led me into the trad community. So this this was something that you started asking yourself about or were you exposed to information that kind of triggered these realizations i think i was i think i was mostly asking myself wow and the inter- the interesting thing was that i would so i started coming to these to these new perspectives and then i found the trad community and i found sort of like the more biblical i, I guess traditionalism is quite biblical in nature mm-hmm. and everything that I had found on my own was what people in this community were talking about already. And I didn't even know that it existed. So it was very much mirroring to me uh, what I had discovered on my own. And then I also saw Elliot Hulse go through quite a transformation as well Mm -hmm. of coming to coming to Christianity and coming to really strong traditional views. It was with him. It was almost like he was already living that way and didn't realize it as well. And then was like, oh, I'm a traditionalist. And seeing him go through that shift really influenced me as well. Yeah, he also read a book uh, by Rollo Tomasi called The Rational Male. And I remember I discovered him after he had read that book and been through his transformation because that also was part of my transformation was a talk by Richard Cooper on the 21 convention uh, called Be Better. That was my first exposure to men who were thinking in a more traditional direction, but my exposure to, I guess I would call it holistic masculinity or integral masculinity began in 2013 with the Mankind Project, which got me a certain distance of the way. Uh, But it wasn't until I found that Richard Cooper talk, which I remember writing in my journal that day, this feels like a really important day. I actually wrote that down after I watched that talk. It felt like an introduction to a bunch of ideas that were very important and very transformative. And then I discovered Elliot Hulse and I went back and I looked at his YouTube and I remember him talking about the rational male and I could go back in his YouTube and look at the earlier videos and see the way that his face looked different, his visage, his countenance, the, the appearance of his face looked different as I guess he would be adopting more traditional, consciously adopting more traditional values. So it seems to be something that men are going through today. Yeah, absolutely. I never, I never really thought about it before, to be honest. I was kind of just going about my life and um, I've written about it before that I was kind of just bumping into women that 
felt good to be around. And next thing I knew, I was just in a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really a, much of a direction other than my focus for a long time was I wanted to do inner work with women. That was kind of like my ideal uh, that I was romanticizing. Yeah, the idea of just doing personal growth work with your partner was something that was very, very appealing to me for quite a long time. And that was kind of my compass with with women. Now, when you say personal growth work, I've done my fair share of that. And I'm, I'm curious for you, what does that look like for you when you think about personal growth work with your partner? Because that's something that I have been looking for as well. And it's quite difficult to find sometimes. But I have my own my own images of it, the things that I've participated in, things that I'm interested in. For you, what what does that mean? Uh, for me, that that means it's just ownership work. It's it's taking responsibility for for your past, because I think in relationship we we definitely carry our past into our present, and I, I've definitely noticed that I have a tendency, or I, in the past especially, I've had a tendency to project uh, wounding that I experienced with my parents onto my partner and playing out that drama in real time. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're unconscious of that mechanism, a uh, relationship can be chaotic and quite damaging. So it, it's somebody who is taking equal ownership of their stuff and that you're, you're bringing your stuff to the relationship to, to work it out. Uh, but, I, but I think that there's definitely, I started to find there was limitations with that approach just because there's not a lot of solidity. You're always sifting and sorting and working through things, but there's not a lot of solid ground to stand on, which is why traditionalism has become so appealing to me because it's so clear and simple and straightforward and solid. This is really interesting. This, these are some of my favorite subjects, personal growth work, and I'd never actually connected it to traditionalism. But now that you say that, I can kind of feel that in myself that, yes, there is some benefit to embracing your own ability to transform yourself and, and uh, your partner and also transforming through relationship, learning to open up to each other, learning how to remove the projections of your parents from each other. Like, you know, a lot of women will wear the projections of their boyfriend's mother and vice versa for women and their girlfriends. I'm going to miss, I messed all that up, but I think you get the idea of each other's projections of parents, I suppose. Like the, the grammar is too confusing for me to process right now. Um, but I gotcha. Yeah, for sure. And uh, there's a lot of value in that, but you're right that there is a lot of, if you make everything into a transformative experience, then you're right. There is no solid ground versus if you look at these traditional kind of ideas about how men and women have interacted for thousands of years, that that is actually solid and it is functional if you adhere to it. Well, and if you adhere to it and you accept that there's a lot of discomfort built into it for both people. Yeah. Functionality is really the key word there for me because that was another part of my process was when I decided, Hey, you know what? I really want to commit deeper to the path of becoming a father. It was looking around at the world and seeing what relationship styles are working and quickly realizing that I couldn't see any, right? Like the, the whole postmodern mm-hmm. dating style of uh, there's no sort of difference between man and woman. You're in like a domestic partnership. There, yeah, there's just no clearly defined roles. It seemed like those relationships weren't working in, in, my, in my eyes. And I actually started going to church and 
I met a I met a Catholic family with seven kids, and they have very very clearly defined roles, and that 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 is the most successful relationship that I that I know of personally. The the husband and wife for that Catholic family. Yes, and they yeah. they brought their seven kids. When you started going to church, did you go to a Catholic church or just from being in the Christian community? I gather you weren't raised Christian. No, I wasn't, and I was. I was kind of just bouncing around from place to place and I had a distant family member that I didn't know. And this is the family that I was talking about. So I, I met them. I just actually met them for the first time last year. So this, this distant family member was the Catholic family that was inspiring to you to sort of adopt traditional values. They, de- they definitely were a living example and helped kind of cement the things that I was learning. Cause I, I was seeing it right in front of me in practice and going, yes, like this is, this works, this makes sense, right? How did you find out about this family member? Uh, I, I knew about them peripherally, but it was just one of those things where I just didn't have an, I didn't have an interest in, in connecting with them because I just didn't see the value. And then once my perspective shifted, it was like, oh yeah, there's this family that's living this way. And then all of a sudden I was like, yeah, you know, I should probably go spend some time with them. Isn't that amazing, right? Everyone has the joke about every family has a crazy uncle or something like that. And in some cases, some of those uncles are very crazy, but sometimes those uncles actually have something very interesting to say and the family just kind of dismisses them as crazy. Completely. When I, yeah. When I was, when I was 19, I had a uh, conservative family member, very conservative. And he was a very successful man, uh, multimillionaire, had raised multiple kids, had, you know, tons of grandkids by, by all measures, he was a, a successful man. And I used to get into really intense debates with him. Mm-hmm. And in a, lot, in, in a lot of ways, in my mind at that time, I thought he was the problem mm-hmm. uh, with the world, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's definitely, definitely changed. And I've, I've very much come around to his way of thinking as I've gotten older. And uh, our, our relationship is in the best place it's ever been. And he he's seen the whole the whole cycle with me. And how does he how does he feel about it? He must be thrilled. Oh, ab- absolutely, yeah. Because he remembers me being well, really a, like a, a total brat and a complete know it all. Mm. And uh, here I am, like a nineteen year old with no, nothing to show show in my life, sitting at his lake house, telling him that he's the problem. Right? Mm. Yeah, I had um, an uncle who was very conservative as well and very outspoken who I wasn't close to. And I was also quite liberal for a while living in San Francisco, not the kind of liberal that's out there today. Um, I, I never quite connected with those views. I was probably a bit more what might be called a classical liberal, but that whole thing has slid to one side. So this uncle who I was quite removed from, he was very vocal about his conservative opinions. And I thought he was literally insane. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I can't even talk to this guy. And it wasn't until I had some sort of realizations of my own, of just my own, if nothing else, my own inability to hear any perspective that was not my own. And it didn't mean that I was right and he was wrong. It was just, I didn't have the ability to listen to him. And in some ways, I didn't even have the ability to perceive him as a human. It doesn't mean that I was dehumanizing him, but I didn't have the ability to enter into his mind and into his worldview and see it as valid and as valid as my own. And I think that's something that is a real struggle. It's actually a documented thing. There's a book by Jonathan Haidt 
called uh, The Righteous Mind. And at the end of this book, the thing that I remember most about this book is that Haidt talks about there have been multiple scientific sociological studies that have proven that people on the right, on the political right, can articulate people on the left's ideology, ideological view. They can articulate all the different reasons for it and lay out the logic behind it and everything. But people on the left think the only reason someone could possibly be on the right is that they're racist or a terrible person, that, that they have no ability to understand the conservative worldview other than to ascribe it to some uh, broken brokenness of the person. And that's scientifically documented. And that was my exact experience. And that's why I remember reading it from that book. It was like, that was me. That was me being like, oh, you know, anyone who's on the on the political right, they're just terrible people who are angry about society, et cetera, et cetera. But then when I finally was exposed to some information that opened my mind, I realized that, no, this is a coherent worldview, but these worldviews just don't know how to communicate with each other, if I'm being generous. Very much my experience. And yeah, I mean, part of it, part of it for me too, is that I, I thought that, so, so when I was 19, I was quite, quite feminine, I would say, mm. and uh, very much into new age spirituality. <laughs> and I, I was all about, you know, balancing the masculine and feminine within myself. Mm-hmm. you know, and I was a vegan and all that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. And, uh, I thought, I thought that, you know, he needed to be more like me. Right. And that I, I was, I was the example of, of a new way of being masculine <laughs> and, uh, that that was the way forward. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I very much believed that when I was younger, that there was a fundamental problem with masculinity and the way forward was, you know, to be, to be more emotional and that masculinity needed an overhaul. And that I, I guess without, without really saying it, I guess I had bought into the toxic masculinity idea. Mm-hmm, sure. And, and I guess it makes sense growing up without a father, why I would feel that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, where did you get those ideas Were those given to you by your mother, by the environment around you? Like what's the, where do you feel like they first came from? I don't think that my mother really gave me those ideas. I think that I just, didn't know how to be a man. And I think that because I had so much anger and hatred towards my father, how, how could I, how could I want to step into a traditional view of masculinity? How could that be right when what happened to me was so wrong? So now I'm, now I'm curious, you know, what happened and anger and hate towards one's father, a man feeling anger and hate towards his father is a real thing. And so that's a, that's a powerful thing to acknowledge. So, you know, you've, generated my curiosity and, and when what happened yeah uh so I'll, I'll tell you i'll tell you the story mm. as best as i can recount it um so i was i was born out of an affair oh wow and yeah so my dad had a my dad had a family at home and he was seeing my mother on the side and he was lying to my mom about the fact that he like he he pretty much told my mother that um he was on a break from his relationship with his wife and my mom believed him. And I guess they were seeing each other for about a year. And then my mom got pregnant. She had me and my dad never told anybody. Never told, like didn't tell his wife and family. Yeah. He never told anybody. He didn't acknowledge my existence. I guess you could say. Okay. I mean, I, yeah. Like I think he was a little bit there when I was, 
an infant. Like I have, a, I have a p- one picture of him uh, drinking a beer and holding me, mm-hmm. but he, he was not any part of my life at all. And uh, I didn't end up meeting him until I was 16 years old. Oh, wow. What happened, how, how I ended up meeting my father was when I, when I was about nine years old, I randomly turned to my mother one day and I said, um, do I have any brothers or sisters that I don't know about? Mm-hmm. And she, she, looked, she looked at me and she said, yeah, you have a sister. And this was the first I had heard of it. So I was so mad at my mom that I didn't talk to her for a number of days for keeping that from me, right? And um, I said, one day, when I calmed down, I said, one day when I get older, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find her and I'm going to contact her. So when I was 16, I found her on Facebook. And I remember, I remember going to her profile every day for a number of days and just looking at her picture and being like, wow, that's my sister. And I was really wrestling with myself and I was saying, you know, should I, should I send her a message and tell her who I am? Because I knew obviously it was going to be quite a bombshell if I was to do that. And eventually I worked up the courage and I sent her a message and she was a little bit confused at first. And then I just said, I said, is so-and-so your father? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, he's my father too. Mm-hmm. And she, she, she believed me right away. And we started talking for a number of months, pretty much every day, kind of just kept catching up and figuring, figuring things out. And eventually her and I got together and I met, I met her mom. And at that point, everybody on my dad's side of the family found out about me. Mm. So he came over finally to, to say hello. Like came over like in the room or something like that, or came over to, to your apartment. He came over to my mom's, my, my mom's house. Mm. So he came over to see me and my mom. I was was 16 at that point. Yeah. There, there was no more, there was no more hiding. There was no more secret. Right. So he, he was caught. So he, he, he came over and I, I remember that moment very clearly. Can you describe it? Yeah. Um, I remember looking out, looking outside and seeing him sitting in the car and I honestly felt empathy for him because I could only imagine what that would feel like to be driving over to your 16 year old son's place and mm-hmm. having never, having never met him and just completely shunned all that responsibility and what, what do you say and how do you deal with that situation? What awaits you on the other side when you actually come to the door and have to confront this reality that you've ignored for so long. So I really, I felt genuine empathy for him. And he, he came up to the, he came to the door and I think he, he shook, he shook my hand and it was just like, wow, this is, this is my father, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, we sat down and me being me, which is quite, I can be quite intense and direct and to the point. I just said, where have you been all my life? Oh, God. <laughs> you know, and he, he just, he had no answer for me. He just, he couldn't answer. And, uh, that, no, he couldn't answer for me. He, he couldn't answer anything. And, that was, that was hard. Uh, he just kind of sat there stammering. How was he dressed? Business casual. Okay. So he's, he was a professional. And yeah. Okay. He, he, he's very respected in, in his field. Oh, wow. And he, he has quite, quite a name for himself. Did you, from that meeting, did you get what you wanted from it in the conversation? Because it sounds to me as you're describing the way that he handled it 
that he really had nothing to say for himself at all. Like here he is being confronted by his essentially abandoned 16-year-old son, his only son, because you said he had a daughter with his wife, right? Yeah. And so here's... That's a... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you're saying, you know, did I, did I get the answer? Mm -hmm. Did I get anything? And I did, I didn't get anything. And it was, it was so hard because I think naturally when, when your father's absent like that, you just, you build them up in your mind. Right. And it could be as a hero or as a villain. And in my case, it was mainly a villain. And even though he was, he was absent, so much of my life was defined by that absence. Like I, I played, I played basketball at a pretty high level. And I remember very competitive and consciously thinking as a kid when I played basketball, I want, I wanted to, I wanted to prove myself to him, even though he wasn't there. And I was kind of constantly trying to perform to, in a way, I felt like I was actually trying to gain his love. Mm -hmm. So actually, actually meeting, meeting this man, it was it was it, obviously it was a huge moment for me, but I didn't, I didn't get anything that I, that I wanted from that encounter. Did you see him again after that? I did. I did start to see him here and there. And I got, I started, what I started to get from him was the performance of him. Mm. So as I mentioned, him being a professional and an expert in, in his field, he's, he's a very charismatic man. He's very charming. He's very, He's a great storyteller. He can captivate a room. Um, fascinating. And he can really turn that on and put on a great show. So I started to see that side of him. But when it came to any matters of the reality of our connection or what happened, there, there was never any talk of that. His relationship with his wife and his daughter, was he, to your knowledge, was he different around them? No. Mm. Now, what I started to learn was that how he was with me was how he was with every, every person mm. and that nobody knew his story. I wasn't the only one. It was lit literally nobody knew his story. And to this day, nobody knows his story. And what happened with him and his wife? Did they stay together and his daughter? Uh, they were already separated when oh. news of my existence came to light. Got it. Okay. But... Yeah, I mean, he was also, he was physically present for my, for my sister, but he was completely emotionally absent mm -hmm. for her. So I guess the reality also started to dawn on me that even if he was there, he was an incapable man. In some really important ways. Yeah, in, in maybe the most important ways. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes sense why out of that experience, you would draw the conclusion that what's wrong with men is not that they need to be physically or financially stronger, but more emotionally aware, right? <laughs> yeah, well, well said. Yeah, exactly. How often, yeah. Did, how often did you see him? You know, from that point forward, was it like once a year, or twice a year, once every couple of years? It was a couple, couple times a year. Mm -hmm. I was really amped on the belief that I was going to be the one to change him. Mm -hmm that everybody had tried and nobody had gotten through them. But funny enough, my specialty was I'm, I'm a very emotionally articulate man and I'm very able to express myself and to say 
to speak from my heart and to say what I feel. So I thought, this is my purpose. This, I, I'm the one. I'm the one to, to have him wake up. And how'd that go? Well, I kept, I kept trying and I tried different things over the years where I would try to just meet him where he was and connect with him in, in his world. And I would do that for a number of meetings and wouldn't really get anywhere. And then I started to try to up the dial a little bit and ask questions. And that's when he would clam up and sit there stammering. And there was one time at a, at a restaurant, I, I just decided, okay, this is the time I'm just going to lay it all on the table. And I'm just going to say everything I, everything I want to say, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. And I went there and I just, I said everything I had to say and he ended up getting really mad and he slammed his fist on the table and he said, this is highly abnormal. Oh. And I said, what you and I having a relationship as father and son, me like saying to you how I feel. And, uh, <laughs> that was the last, that was the last time that I really tried mm-hmm. to get something out of him. How old were you? I was about 25. Okay. So this is, you guys had known each other for about 10 years at this point, nine years. Yeah. Nine years. Yeah. And, uh, not, nothing happened. And I, I had, I had all that. Like I, I, I started with that got you curious was the hate and the anger. Mm-hmm. And I joined a men's group for, for that reason, because I was getting to a place in my life where I was sick of carrying that. How did you find the men's group? And this, this is around the same time. So just, so you're, so you finally have nine years or so after being with him and trying like a saint to get him to come around to show you some of the fatherly love and connection that you didn't get growing up. It's very you know natural for a kid to try and get that um, at any age, right? Just the opportunity, like, oh my gosh, this is how I'm imagining it anyway. You know, finally you're connecting with your father and it's like, why is he not opening up? Why is he not opening up? And if you're the one who's capable of being open naturally, you'll try every approach that you know in your arsenal of emotional awareness to get him to open up. And then finally, nine years in, you've finally just, you know, dropped the bomb on him. Like, okay, this is the last play, I guess you might say. And his response is so powerfully negative. Yeah, that would leave me pretty pissed off and brokenhearted too, for sure. Yeah, and I, I think that pain, that pain was always in me. Mm-hmm. From I, I honestly remember that pain being in me from the time that I can remember anything. I, think, I, I remember consciously thinking like, where is my dad and why doesn't he love me when I was three or four years old? So it goes, it goes deep, right? And I, uh, I think that I just got to a point in my life where I was, so from the time that I was 19, I was really hell bent on personal development, personal improvement, self-growth, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew that I had issues. I knew that, I knew that there were things that I had to work on and I, and I tried everything. I tried everything that I could. And I was trying to, I was trying to heal my wounding on my own. And I was just kind of hitting wall after wall after wall. And that that's when I decided to join the the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. I just want to acknowledge something real quick, which is that before we talk about the brotherhood, that I, I, I think it's really important for men like us to be having these conversations because in the Renaissance of men or in the masculine revival or in this 
awakening that seems to be going on in the world of men, particularly in America. There's a lot of talk about physical fitness and all these things are great. All, th all these things are great. There's, these are all wonderful things to be aware of. Physical fitness, romance, dating, financial success, discipline, family, stoicism, all these ideas are very popular uh, as well they should be because they're really important for forging a sense of independence and boundaries. But I find that it's very difficult for a lot of men to go into emotional discussions of the ways that their fathers and mothers and families have authentically harmed them as children and coming to grips with that and coming to understand that that's, these are things that live in us. And that's certainly been my story in my own way coming around to my own transformation from the things that have happened in my childhood. And uh, it, it's your story as well. And I think these conversations need to happen more in a way that doesn't devolve into, and this is some damage that I think the new age world has really done is showing videos of you know men in drum circles and crying and holding each other. And it's a very feminine portrayal. And it's not necessarily portrayed in a way that's honest or makes it something that men naturally want to do. Yes, of course, when we go into painful events from our childhood, tears are part of it. But there's a way to cry and a way to approach it that holds what I might call a masculine container. And then there's a different way of approaching it that seems very feminized. And that's at least what's been put into the public dialogue. And I think that turns a lot of men off from really talking about the stuff that happened to us in childhood that causes us real pain. And so I think these, these kind of conversations are really important between men so we can acknowledge, yes, this is a part of life. And the more you try to deny it, you can make it fuel to a certain extent, but it becomes your Achilles heel after a while. That, that was beautifully said. And I, I can, I fully, <laughs> I fully agree with you, man. And, and uh, see, I, I'm a bit different, I would say, because I think for a lot of men, maybe they could use the advice of show your emotions more. Right. I think I, I get, I get women DMing me when I, when I do question and answer type stuff on my Instagram and a lot of women say to me, I need my husband to open up more. It, it's funny. Cause for me, I actually need to talk less. <laughs> um, right. I need to, I need to be more, I need to cultivate more stoicism. So I'm kind of coming at it from the opposite side, but I think both, both are valid and there's a, there's a center point and there's a balance, right? And, and that's the thing is there's no one size fits all solution. And to say that all men should approach masculinity like the portrait painted in, in uh, Marcus Aurelius meditations or in Iron John or in the nine laws or in any of these books or like the rational male or the way of men, all of these books are pieces of the puzzle of masculinity. And that's something I think is completely lost this idea that we're all trying to define what masculinity is when really the most that we can do is define what masculinity is for us in the hopes that it inspires someone else to pursue what it looks like for them. And just to come back to your Instagram account for a second, what I like about your Instagram account is that's very clearly a reflection of you. You're not just posting, um, like I said, you're not just posting memes or you're not just posting random content. Like it's you, it's very clearly you in ways that I couldn't have known at the time because I didn't know as much about your journey but who you are really comes through in the content that you put up, that you put up. And I can see your story not reflected in the things that you post. Thank you. Yeah. I, I really appreciate, I appreciate that feedback because I really make a conscious effort 
to not try to answer the questions of masculinity and take that on on myself. Like I think we were we were talking a little bit about this earlier. Like there's a very real part of me that's that says, you know, who am I? Who am I to have you be interviewing me right now, given my story? Sure. Right. Um, who who am I? Who am I to talk about a masculine revival <laughs> mm-hmm. with that with that story that I just told you? And that masculine revival is very much my own work and my own it's a it's a continuation of my own personal healing to to step into authority and to step into leadership and to to face my own fears as well because there's a big part of me that I don't I don't want to be seen right I don't I don't want to be seen and I don't want to be heard and I think that there are a lot of men that are going through that and I really yeah I really I really don't want to come across as somebody that's perfect and polished and I really try to show that, you know, I'm, I'm just, a, I'm just a guy and I'm just doing my work and I'm just down here figuring it out just like the rest of us. That's interesting that you say, uh, you don't want to be seen. I know this feeling. I know this feeling of, of everything that you're describing. The Renaissance of men is my work. It's the culmination of my work as well. Like you and I are doing and living the same thing. And if I were to talk about my background, I would have the same questions. Like, who am I to be talking about masculinity? Except that, what makes you and I different is that we've both put in the work to discover it. And it's one thing if you're born with a really strong father or a strong father figure in your life, like a grandfather or an uncle or something like that, or a coach. A lot of men have coaches that teach them a lot about masculinity. And you grow up with that and you just kind of carry it with you. And you're never really forced to examine it because it's just who you are. But when you come from a place of lack of lack of experience, of not knowing what it is. And yet somehow there's this impulse within you and within me to find out what it is. There's a process of learning consciously that I think creates a level of understanding that someone just born with it wouldn't necessarily have. And so who are you and I to be talking about masculinity? Well, we're the guys who had to figure it out for ourselves, (laughs) you know? And so uh, we've gotten to a place where certainly I'm no, you know, authority coming down from the mountaintop. And I don't think that you would say you are as well. Uh, You are either. But at the same time, I know the tools that I've taken to apply to myself, to transform myself, to put me in a place where I can stand up straight and say, yeah, I'm a man. And I think that knowledge, that study, that practice is valuable to other men who are trying to do the same thing and gives us an important place in the conversation. Uh, yeah, I, f- I fully, fully agree with that. Very, very much. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between our, our stories. Eh? <laughs> Quite a bit, actually. Quite a bit. Well, so, so tell me about this, uh, this brotherhood that you found. By the way, so help me understand how we talked early on about your Instagram account, uh, Masculine Revival 1.0, and the timeline for when you went through that, I guess, political awakening, and then you transitioned it to more content about masculinity. How does that timeline line up with the timeline of what happened with uh, your father and when you met him when you were 16 and that encounter uh, at, at 25? How do those two timelines, or do they, like, or is it more linear, I guess? There's masculine revival. The whole thing was started after I would say that I, I healed my, my wounding with my father. And I, I really closed that chapter. So I think the next step chronologically would just be talking about my experience with the brotherhood um, 
because that out of, out of all the personal growth work I've done in almost 10 years has been by far the most transformative work that I've done. Mm-hmm. And it's very much a part of my story and always will be. I heard about the Samurai Brotherhood from you. I had heard the name before uh, and I might've looked it up, but I think finally when, when you mentioned it was when I did some more research into it and read the website and everything. So I'd never heard of it before. It's great that there are groups of men doing this. So please, you know, tell the men listening all about this group. It's a community of men based in Vancouver, BC. And it's about men that are really doing the work that we're talking about and taking conscious ownership of their lives and of their, of their process and really striving to be the best men that they can be. I heard about it. And at first I was, I went to an open house and the the energy for me was so palpable Mm. to sit in a room with 30 men and just to go around the room and, and introduce yourself and to say why you were there was at, at that time was so difficult for me that I, as soon as the open house was over, I left and I didn't come back for over two years until I actually decided to join, join the brotherhood. It took you two years. Um, wow. Yeah. Two, two, two years. And then I heard about it again on a podcast and I was like, you know what? I really need, I need to do this because I'm, I, the year before I was coming out of a really severe depression and I just wasn't that functional in my life. Mm-hmm. I, part of my backstory too, is that I've really struggled with shame and anxiety mm-hmm. to, to at points, very crippling degrees, mm-hmm. unable to go to go out and do basic fun- functioning pretty much like uh, going to a bank, going to get coffee, uh, going to the grocery store, running into a friend, all of these things that at certain points in my life would trigger me into 10 out of 10 anxiety and almost like humiliation and embarrassment to the point that I would be, I'd be sweating, like dripping, dripping sweat just from the, the barista saying, Hey, can I take your order? Wow. <laughs> that's how deep, that's how deep the shame was and how deep I did. Like, really, I didn't want to be seen. Right. Like there's I could feel people behind me and it's like, what are they thinking about me? And I'm starting to, to panic and the thoughts are getting away. And then I'm feeling the heat come on and it's coming from my stomach and it's rising up through my chest. And now it's in my face. And Oh, can they see how ashamed I am? And, and that, that level of panic and fear. Right. So <laughs> I, I ended up facing the fear and joining the brotherhood. And my first meeting, I was so, I was so anxious that I could barely even speak. And a couple of the guys came to me on the break and they're like, are you all right, man? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And I, I just started, I just started going every week. It's, it's once a week for three hours an evening. And I just started going. And uh, the first meeting, when a new guy joins, you have to tell the story of your father. So I, I got to tell the story between me and my father in, in front of a group of men, which in and of itself is quite healing. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe like my second or third meeting, I had a, I had a process where one of the guys just said, dude, you, you're like, you're so anxious. You're so nervous. Like, just tell us what's going on. So I, I confessed and I said, yeah, I feel this way and I'm carrying all this stuff and I don't know what to do. And the facilitator got me to stand up and all of the men, I think there was 14 guys in the group at the time came around me and put a hand on my back, on my chest. And they were all standing around me mm-hmm. and they're all just looking, looking at me and one at 
time they were saying, I see you, I support you, I've got your back. Um, you're in the right place. And it's probably the first time in my life I've ever felt that level, like that level of brotherly love. Right. And it, it was just, it was so overwhelming for me. And it really lit a fire in me to, to keep going, to keep showing up. So it was just a slow process of really chipping away at my, at my fear, my distrust of men and all that wounding and baggage that I was carrying. And uh, yeah, it culminated in one meeting where I, for whatever reason, I think it, it came up again, my, my anger, my rage towards my father. And uh, we did a process where one of the men got up and stood in front of me and the facilitator said, okay, th this is your father. This man, this man right here in front of you, this is your father. What do you want to say to him? Mm. And all the other men stood behind me and they had their hands on my back and they were supporting me. And it started out with me saying words and it quickly turned into me screaming, ra just raging, wailing, swearing, trying to, the guys were all holding me back and I was trying to rip through the guys to kill the man in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I was being, I was just being like res physically restrained and I'm screaming, wailing, crying, shouting, yelling, letting out these primal animalistic noises. And then I collapsed on the floor and I was pounding the ground and I got up again and I was trying to rip through. And this just kept, this was just going on and on and on. And I was crying and the rage turned to sadness and, the sadness turned into rage again and it was just an ongoing process and eventually I just worked myself into utter exhaustion and I laid on on my back and I was staring at the ceiling and I cried so hard that I had burst blood vessels around my eyes mm. and I was breathing so heavily and all the guys were just they had a hand like hands on me like physically just touching me and being like hey man you're all right and honestly from that moment I just never felt that that level of anger towards my father ever again mm -hmm. it's like i just it, it was like a physical exorcism um an emotional exorcism is what i feel like it was for me and something that was really interesting about that experience was when i was in it there was something that i kept shouting and i kept saying it's not mine it's not mine it's not mine and at the time i had no idea why i was saying that um it was just coming out of me and I, I just, I found it really interesting because I think, I think what I was actually referring to was the fact that all that shame, all that shame that I felt, all, all that, the, the baggage that I was carrying, it, it didn't belong to me. It was, it was his, right. Mm -hmm. And his, his failure, his failures in life and his failure to take responsibility and his failure to be a father and his failure to, to show up for me. It wasn't, it wasn't mine. And it's like, I let it go. You can't see it right now, but I'm pretty emotional hearing all this because I've been, <laughs> I've been, I'm feeling it too, man. Yeah. Well, I've been blessed to see work like that. And of course to have done a fair amount of work that like that myself. And um, I can picture it very clearly. And I know what that process looks like and feels like. And it's, um, it's quite a thing to go through and it's very, very necessary. And sometimes I, I get a little frustrated with men who clearly need to do work like that themselves. And I look at men who can be so 
strong and, and tough and successful who are so afraid to go inside and confront their wounds. And then I hear a story like yours and remember what an incredible act of courage it takes to surrender to something like that, to really feel that, to really feel something that's so powerful that it can destroy you, but it already is destroying you. And that that's the whole thing, right? Is that it was destroying me and it was running my life and, and it, you know, getting to the point of just admitting that, that I'm here because this thing's got a, a hold on me and it's affecting my, it's just affecting me, my day-to-day functioning, you know, and being in a, being in the presence of men and feeling, feeling the distrust and feeling the, the skepticism and feeling myself hold guys at arm's distance because I didn't want to get hurt. Right. Like all that wounding. The reason that, that men's work is so powerful is because our wounding forms in relationship and the only place that it can heal is in relationship. Right. And we really get that opportunity when we're amongst men to heal our issues with, with our father. And that's very true. And I think a lot of men listening to this might find a description of a story like that to be very intense and almost unimaginable. Uh, and also you were telling the story of when you were in the meeting earlier and the 14 men stood around you and all placed a hand on you and, and told you that they see you. And, you know, work like that would be, someone might think about that and be like, oh, that seems kind of silly or whatever word applies to them. But the thing is, what those men are doing in that moment is something that a father is supposed to do over the course of years, not supposed to do it with words necessarily, but the father is supposed to be there and is supposed to be saying, I see you in the things that he says and does in his treatment of his son. And if a father doesn't do that, those wounds get carried because the child psychology, I guess you might say, is programmed to receive that. And if the psychology doesn't receive it, that need will always be there. And most men will go through their lives with that need. Many men, I don't know if I would say most, but many men will go through their lives with that need unmet. And that unmet need will create anger and stress and rage and shame until other men can come in and give that energy that was never given in childhood. And um, so it's the furthest thing from silly. That's what healing is. That's what it looks like. Exactly. And yeah, just, just the knowledge that this stuff really, it's generational trauma, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because I am my father. Mm-hmm. My father's in me and there's no getting away from that. There's no amount of anger or hatred or rage that could ever separate me from that truth that it's within me. So what am I going to do with it? That really informed me joining the brotherhood is, is that knowledge. And, you know, my, my father's father died young. I think his father's father died young. So it's generations of absent fathers mm-hmm. on that side of my family. I can see how the bits that I do know about my dad, I can see how his issues live in me, right? Like his, his demons that he never resolved or dealt with or what have you. Those are now my, my struggles. So my, my work is, is to really do, do the work so I'm not passing that on to my kids. And I, I can't stress how important that is. 
again, you know, in this Renaissance of Men or the masculine revival, there's a lot of talk about, as well there should be, about getting in shape, about sorting out your finances and uh, dating. And all these things are great, but there is something so important about being able to go into the heart of generational male trauma and to know what it takes to heal it. And to some extent, I don't even like the, these words anymore because the new age community has so overused them that words like trauma and healing have this hyper-feminized kind of feeling around them. They're not inherent to the words themselves, but it's still this un, inescapable connotation. But I, I can't, I struggle to think of other words in the moment. Maybe that's the need is to come up with a new language. But to go into the space of having been hurt as a child in the same way your father was hurt and your grandfather and your grandfather, and to now have the awareness for whatever reason, you having that awareness and me having that awareness and millions of men around the world having that awareness, at least hundreds of thousands anyway, of knowing, okay, I am carrying these hurts now that I have inherited from my father, that my father inherited. And now I have the skill and the desire and the support to transform them, to heal them, you know, to, to recover from them. I don't, I don't know what the right language is, but how vital that process is as vital as getting in shape. In fact, I would say in some men, certainly this was true for me. I wasn't actually able to get in shape until I healed my own trauma because so much of mm. trauma relates to food, right? Our relationship to food is, is deeply related to comfort. It's not strictly just a discipline thing with some people. So the only way that some kids, in fact, now that I'm talking this out, this may have been true for me. The only way that some kids can really soothe their anxiety of being abandoned in some way as children is to eat because you, you put it in your mouth. And, wow. Yeah. And that, I think that's probably part of my story at least. And so I was overweight for many years and to varying degrees. And it wasn't until I healed that inner trauma and became more comfortable in myself, in my own physical body, with my own anxiety of existence, that I finally reached a place where I could begin having discipline with what I ate and not overeat to soothe my anxiety because I had I, I had exhausted the anxiety. And then the weight kind of came off naturally. I had fought for years, but I was fighting against myself, against the thing that was inside me. And I finally overcame it. And then it, was, it wasn't an effortless process because of course the discipline's never effortless, but it certainly wasn't this uphill battle in the snow. And so I, I think inner healing, healing trauma, whatever phrase you want to use, this can be so fundamental to creating meaningful change in, in men's lives. And it gets completely overlooked uh, in many different dimensions of this renaissance or revival. Yeah, it, it very much is a stigma. And what comes up for me when you say that is that you, for you, it was food. For me, it was actually sex. Mm. So I think, you know, as an infant, there's a lot of ways you can self-soothe. And, and mine, mine was masturbation, right? Mm. I remember from a young age, and it's like um, that, that very much carries over that, that dependence on releasing sexual energy can can be a, another mechanism for coping as well right and yeah like you said until you do that work you're kind of you, you're using that thing as a crutch to prop yourself up this is a a phenomenon of the of the porn addiction you know there's a lot of guys who approach it as if it's again just a discipline issue like all that's required is more stoicism and that may be true for some of the men but certainly for some of some men like you say, you know, holding the sexual energy, which is this buildup of energy, particularly of young men. And if you have a high anxiety young man who hasn't been properly parented, perhaps probably hasn't had a proper father, 
he's naturally going to feel the sense of anxiety, probably mother as well. And that anxiety will need to be released somehow. And so you look at addictions with porn, you look at addictions to food or sex or smoking or drinking or video games. And I, I see all these ways as ways that men who have not been given proper parenting, probably proper fathering, I would have to think about whether the mother would play in that. Undoubtedly she does, but I think the, the boundaries of the father play such a vital role. So naturally he's going to turn to the most available thing, you know, that seems to soothe the nervous system, the energized nervous system state, the, the anxiety. And so I think that's a major factor of so many of these addictions that are plaguing especially young men, but also increasingly older men as well. Yeah, that's spot on. And I think it is, it, it speaks to an absence of fatherhood for sure, because you know, I, I had a great mother by all accounts. She, she showed up and she did her best and she was completely committed to being a parent. And she just didn't have the ability to, uh, to set boundaries with me. And as I, as I got older, I could, I, I could kind of just overpower her with my will, right? Like if I wanted to do something, I figured out, as I became a preteen or a teen, it's like, I'm just going to go do it. And you're not, you're not going to stop me. Mm. And I could get away with whatever I wanted. Right. And it's just, it doesn't matter how good or bad of a mother she, she was. It, she just didn't have the, the tools to give me the structure and the structure and the discipline that I needed. I mean, it's, it's a tall order for a, a woman to be asked to be both a mother and a father. I don't know that, a man can be both a father and a mother. And so it's unrealistic to think that a woman can be a, a, a mother and a father and do both roles equally well, especially with a, you know, a tall, capable son who can overpower her. Like that's very natural. And so there's no one there to establish boundaries on you. Yeah. So what, what do you think about, what do you think about this whole insinuation that these things that we're talking about. I, I think a lot of guys, you said the word silly. I think the actual word is probably got a lot of guys saying that's, that's really gay. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. What, what is, what, what is that? And, and what, what do we do about that? Because I understand the sentiment very much. And I also have an aversion towards the rampant effeminacy that I'm seeing these days. But that, like, like we're talking about, there is this, this is my story and that these things happen. And doing this type of work really changed my life. Mm-hmm. So how, how do we, what, what do we do in the face of this? I guess is my question. I'll give you, I can give you two answers off the top of my head. Um, one will require a bit of research, which we don't have to do right now, but it's a homework assignment for those of you who haven't done it. There's a movie called, and it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's called The Work. It's about a group of men who go into, I think it's a San Quentin or Folsom State Prison in California, and they conduct a men's healing workshop uh, with a civilian men, I guess you'd say, men from the outside world, and men who are doing serious time. And it happens once a month or once a year or something like that. It's a regular thing. And I've actually done some work with the organization that puts this on. So this documentary, The Work, chronicles a weekend where these outside men come in and do the work with very hardened criminals, some men that are doing life sentences. And it shows the power of inner healing in a very masculine way. There's no doubt that the men in this are very, very masculine and have been through some very intense things. And it is possible for men to do very deep, very serious inner emotional and spiritual work 
and to have it be a masculine process. So that's my first answer. The second answer for me, because this is something that I've thought about, is it actually makes me really mad, authentically angry in the sense of a boundary has been crossed because I look at words like bromance and uh, Mm. no homo and phrases like that, Mm. that men can't say things like, hey, I love you, bro, without it being like, what do you, without having to qualify, like, but I'm not gay though. That for, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like for hundreds, like if you read the Iliad, if you read Homer's The Iliad, the moving and uh, poetic expressions of masculine love that these legendary warriors express for each other, the weeping when they die and the ways that they honor each other, you know, they don't do these big long soliloquies and then at the end say, no homo. You know, it was just kind of understood that men could feel love for each other. They could feel a masculine love without sexualizing it. And I think phrases like no homo and phrases like bromance have been intentionally introduced into the language over the past, say, 20, 30, 40 years in order to undermine intentionally, intentionally by culture to undermine men's connection with each other, to sever men from each other because men are strong when they come together, when they can feel emotions and work as a team and sense each other's emotions. Um, Like in a team sport, you can just kind of tell where you're, like when a team is really firing on all cylinders, you can just tell where your teammates out at. And when you see a team that's playing that way, where everyone's in sync, that's a really special thing to watch. So when you divide men who aren't on sports teams from each other, when they lack the ability to communicate emotionally or to trust themselves in feeling their emotions, you divide men from each other and they don't trust each other and then they become isolated and then you can pick them off. So these ideas like, you know, that that men uh, masculine love between two men, sexualizing it, uh, between heterosexual men having having to qualify it, that's the direct result of some polluted ideas that have been consciously injected into our culture. And so the first thing that has, what do we do about it is I begin saying that to every man, you have to examine the attitudes you have in your life to men and the feelings of love you have for other men and accept that they're natural and good and there's nothing gay about them. So that's the first thing that I would say. That's where it starts is in a conversation like this. Yeah. It's, it's almost like we're so cut off from our experience of masculinity and brotherhood that it does become sexual almost in our minds. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we don't experience love for other men. We like, if you didn't have a father, if you didn't have uncles, you know, you have no, you have no concept of it. So it, it, it is like, it's like, am I gay? If I, if, if I love my, my guy friend, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, and that's, that's just a thing that's out there. In fact, even if you do have uncles and brothers, like there's a way that men can feel love for each other. The adult males can feel love for each other where it's like there's still this distance, you know, when you go to hug someone and, you know, they make sure that they, you know, you clasp your hands in this bro style so your chests don't touch or you pat each other on the back and it's this very superficial, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to go in for this big long... Three, three taps. What's that? Three, three taps. I'm not gay. <laughs> yeah you're right that's exactly right you know this way that we're prevented from actually like wrestling with each other as well which is why i'm actually i don't actually do this but it's one of the things that interests me like this brazilian jujitsu thing 
like no, like these are like uh, I was talking to my buddy Derek. He was on he was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about you know it's two sweaty dudes you know <laughs> rolling around on each other, and your heads pressed up this other dude's head, and you're all you're really fully engaged, and no one looks at that and says, dude, that looks totally gay. No one says that about it. <laughs> I haven't heard it. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. this weird dichotomy. It's like men can engage in these things, and the fact that the only thing that we can think about them, maybe not jujitsu, but the only thing that we can think about them is gay has nothing to do with the things themselves, but the pollution of our thinking. Yes. And, and men, men can engage with them, with these things. And it doesn't mean that something needs to fundamentally change about masculinity because of it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, when you mean something doesn't need to fundamentally change, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that a lot of the new age movement, there's a suggestion, like there's this term like neo-masculinity and, or, or even, even conscious masculinity, right? It's like, right it's this like 2.0 version of masculinity that, and there's like this, there's a kind of an insinuation that there's just, there's something wrong mm-hmm. with the way that men operate. So you can, you can do, you can do this work. And I guess, I guess be a traditional man at the same time. It's not one or the other. I totally agree. And this is actually something that this exact word that you're talking about is something that I've been uh, grappling with lately because on my new website that just launched, uh, I say to rediscover and reinvent masculinity. And then I follow, and the reason why I phrased it that way was because when I started the actual Italian Renaissance, what they did in the Italian Renaissance was they rediscovered ancient Greek and ancient Roman society after the dark ages. And they reinvented maybe even invented for the first time, but they reinvented the notion of what it meant to be an individual because Europe, Europe was very collectivist and very feudal for many years, uh, feudal states like kings and stuff like that. And then coming into the Italian Renaissance, there was this whole, I guess, invention of individuality in the way that we think of it today. So that's why I came up with the language of uh, rediscover and reinvent masculinity. So cut to, you know, a couple, maybe even days later, uh, I follow Ryan Mickler, on Instagram, and he's become a very, very strong voice, particularly in the past six months. And he has uh, probably an Instagram reel or something like that, talking about, we don't need to reinvent masculinity. And it's like, and he lays out a really compelling case for why he doesn't like that word reinvent in the context of using other words, like you said, neo-masculinity. I'm like, oh shit, do I have to dump reinvent masculinity? Because I don't want to be playing into that neo-masculinity kind of vibe because that's not at all what I'm going for because I agree with you that it's the new age world is entirely emasculating. That's what it's designed to be actually. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because to, to me, I think a lot of it, I think it stems from that idea that we all have masculine and feminine energy inside of us and that a man should, should strive to balance those energies. Mm-hmm. And I used to really believe that. And as I've, as I've gotten older and I've, grown i i i would say i pretty much reject that idea Mm -hmm. i think that everything you do in life as a man you do as a man you feel feelings as a man you have sex as a man whatever you're doing you're doing it as a man it's not it's not speaking to a feminine side necessarily Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I, i think that that idea is quite can be quite damaging for men for sure it is for sure i i think um David Data in the book, The Way of the Superior Man, does a good job with this. He says, look, 
there are men who have masculine essences and there are men that have more feminine essences and there are women with masculine essences and women with feminine essences. And this is really early on in the book. Uh, and he talks about how you can decide as a man and a woman in partnership that you're going to try and balance your masculine and feminine essences and you're both going to be balanced individuals. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. However, sexual attraction, passion, and energy is created by polarization. So if you want to have a strong sexual relationship and a strong romantic relationship and be more than just friends uh, in life and in the bedroom. If you really want to have a passionate sexual relationship, you have to be polarized one way or another. And it doesn't matter. You as a man can polarize to the feminine and your wife can polarize to the masculine. It doesn't matter. But you have to be more polarized in order to have a passionate sexual relationship. And that I think is the most compelling argument that I've heard because undoubtedly there are men you know, that are more that are more feminine in nature. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. You can't expect someone who's naturally a poet like Lord Byron to become Giga Chad in the gym, and nor should he be. You know, if his emotional sensitivity allows him to create beauty, that's important. It should be preserved. I don't agree that men should be forced into this box of this is the only thing that it means to be a man. But I think he lays out a case that if you, you have to be able to polarize yourself in some very powerful way to create attraction. And so that's a, that, that I really like that argument. He's been making that argument for more than 20 years now. And so I think that's pretty good in this world where everyone's like, well, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Where does it, where does it come from? And it's very difficult to push back on that in some ways, even though I, 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 I like to, and I enjoy uh, but a lot of people don't want to accept the traditional answer, which is men are created this way and women are created that way. Because if you can't reach them with that, say, biblical answer, there's got to be another way to reach them. And David Data provides the best way to do that that I've found. Right. Not not everybody is going to fit into the traditional framework, and nor, nor should they. But mm-hmm. what appeals to me about traditionalism is that most people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, like the, 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 the vast majority will. And they're, they're actually looking for that. You know, there, there are plenty of men that, that break the mold. But I think the vast majority of men want to be better at, as Jack Donovan says, not being necessarily being good men, but being good at being men. And that looks, you know, that looks a specific set of ways, which is what he lays out in the Way of Men book. Yeah, that, that's, that's my journey very much. Because uh, obviously growing up without a father, I think growing up with a mother, you can definitely become a good man because women are really good at teaching morality. My mom, my mom very much gave me a, a sense of right and wrong, but she didn't teach me, you know, how to work with my hands or how to protect or how to provide, right? Th- those are, those are things that only a man can give you. Do you think that those are separate from morality in a way? I don't mean to be a pain in the ass with that question, by the way. <laughs> mm, I, th- I think so. What, what are you onto though? Well, I'm kind of thinking that, um, the way that I had heard it was that it's actually men in a way that communicate morality. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not a parent myself, uh, although I would like to be one of two, actually, like a wife. <laughs> but um, that there's a maybe maybe what it is, is there's two different kinds of morality. So there's the kind of reality, uh, morality that a mother can communicate, which is about which is relational morality. This is how you treat other people. You treat them with respect and you treat yourself with respect. And I think maybe there's a, a father kind of morality, which is it is moral to go out into the world and be a man and create something and create value for a community and be rewarded for it. And I think that's its own kind of morality. Yeah, I hear that. That sounds right. 
I would like to, I would like to add something. I'm not comfortable with my answer when I was talking about David data. I think I, there were some things that I wasn't clear about. So you asked where the, um, where the new age, new male kind of thing came from. It came out of the sixties is where it, where it originally came from. And the sixties came out of a, a wholehearted rejection of Christianity and traditional values. There was something that was going on in the underground of America, particularly during the roaring twenties. And then it uh, sort of was super underground in the 1950s with a lot of the beat poets. And then it burst into the American cultural scene and I guess the European as well in the 1960s. And it was a full attack on every notion of traditional masculinity. Uh, and uh, the most memorable division in that regard was between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And the Beatles were the traditional kind of foppy, nice guys, you know what I mean? And they were the iconic band of the era. And the other was the Rolling Stones, and those were the rebellious kind of bad boys. Nowhere in the popular culture of the 60s was there any image of the strong masculine provider. In fact, that was a, that was a full assault. And that was where it began, was, was a cultural assault on Christianity with the Beatles, particularly bringing Eastern spirituality to America. And like you, I grew up hearing that that was a good thing, that this was a prophesied moment that the Eastern spirituality would come to the West. And of course, since learned that it was very instrumental in undermining masculinity. Mm. Well said. So, so talk about your experience in this new age world, because I found that I don't, in this new world of, uh, of, rediscovering masculinity, a lot of men don't know too much about it. And that's the world that I come from as well. So I always like talking about it with uh, fellow escapees from uh, the new cage prison. Mm. Um, what would you like to know? <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind, I'm sure we've got plenty that we sure. can share. Sure. So when I, was, uh, when I was 19, I started a Facebook page to document my quote unquote spiritual awakening. <laughs> and I very, I very much felt at the time that uh, I was going through a spiritual awakening and that I was un uncovering my purpose. And my purpose was to help bring about a fundamental change in, in the way that human beings operate. I guess it's like the, the great awakening or something like that. <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe not so much back then. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was sharing and there, I think there was all that hype about like 2012, December 21st, 2012. And oh, yeah. that was going to be like some sort of opening or ascension or something, something big was going to happen. Even if it was just energetic, like the, the energies on the planet were going to change forever. And so I got into this stuff around 20, uh, 2011. So I started this Facebook page called Cultivating Consciousness. And I was just kind of sharing my awakening journey. And very quickly it started to gain traction. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon I had over 5,000 people following me from all over the world. And I was just writing about new ageism and spirituality and just my very juvenile understandings and beliefs at the time that felt like absolute burning convictions that everybody needed to hear. Um, so that's, that's what I was doing at the time. And then I met a girl who was what I believed was like my, my twin flame. So it's like, it's a spiritual concept. It's, it, it's even more than, it's, it's even more than a soulmate. It's like yeah. the, the literal other half of you and that yeah. your final, your final incarnation is you meet, 
you meet together and then in your perfect love you ascend into some sort of enlightened state or something like that uh, you were all the way you were <laughs> right. all the way in there man <laughs> oh man i was even telling the story i'm like oh man this is so cringy um, <laughs> but yeah i was i was all the, i was all the way in and uh yeah i was i was like vegan and then i went even further which was like raw vegan and uh me and this me and my my twin flame we ended up spending several months traveling and we were staying with readers of mine as we were traveling oh wow okay so it was this weird thing where like a lot of people were projecting this kind of that i i knew something right like i'm this 19 year old kid right coming, <laughs> coming from this broken home and i found i stumbled into some new age ideas and then all of a sudden people are like opening their doors for me and letting me stay in their in their homes for free and showing me around their areas and picking my brain for advice and it's it was pretty surreal what did you say the name of your page was again cultivating consciousness definitely nobody listening to this go look at that please (laughs) (laughs) don't worry i definitely definitely will not link it in the show notes (laughs) well actually you know what's really funny is that um I've probably seen it. I can't recall it right now. If I were to say, I haven't been on Facebook in like four years, but if I were to go look it up, I've, I've probably seen some of your content because I've been through that world as well. And I know that at the time, anyway, that you're talking about 5,000 followers was like the limit that you could have. Yeah. And then it actually bloomed all the way up to 13,000. Yeah. I kind of, what happened was I, I just, I started to change and my views weren't the same anymore. So I just more or less left the page there. And I've tried, I've tried a couple of times over the years to restart it in a, in a new way. And I've had brief periods where I've recreated content on there, but ultimately it's just, it's just not really the right medium for me. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing too, is that, that, that community that I built there, it was over 70% women that were middle-aged and 30% men. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, very, very different than what I have now because what I have now with masculine revival is like it's seventy something percent men and thirty percent women. So I think that really that really speaks to just the work that I've done and and how far I've come and and stepping more into my own masculinity that I can speak speak in a way that really resonates with men. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting is that you've mentioned that you went through a phase of anxiety where you were afraid of being seen and yet you've done these really big projects where you've really allowed yourself to be seen in a way, maybe not exactly for who you are in the same way of being in person, but you've certainly taken really big steps into putting your voice and your beliefs out there. Um, And I think that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, It's interesting because when I, when I really sit down, I mean, I feel like my, I feel like my, my purpose and my calling is to be seen. I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm here to be heard and I, and I have something to say. And then there's that, that old wounding, right? That the imposter that says, like I said earlier, who, who am I to be doing this? And there very much is, in a way, I would say that in me, there's a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde thing going on, even through my page, right? Even through taking the invitation to do this podcast, it's, it's playing out and I'm, and I'm, it's something that I'm continuing to work through is, is that switching back, back and forth between, you know, hey, I'm Brandon and I have something to say and you should hear it. And then like, don't look at me. I don't deserve to be here. <laughs> I have nothing to say. 
uh, I'm going to pass the mic off to you. Like I'm, I'm leaving. See you later. You know, there's those two sides. And um, yeah, I think that what I, what I'm doing through, through sharing is I'm just continuing to do my own work. So when you get into those moments where you're say paralyzed and you think you have no idea what you're doing and you start questioning and you start feeling that imposter syndrome, as I know that's something that's very common in everybody who's good at anything as you know, they wonder, wow, I'm just faking and I got no idea what I'm doing. And that's a, that would be an interesting conversation to talk about <clears throat> what that muscle is in people. But when you get into that space, what do you do? Well, for me, it's really about slowing down. And it's something that I'm really, I'm really learning on the fly. Because with Masculine Revival, it was really only about a month and a half ago that I started sharing content again. And it started with me being like, hey, I haven't written in a while, I should put a post up there. And I did it and it felt good. So then I did a couple more. And then it very quickly turned into me being like, this is this is everything. This is going to be a business. I'm going to start four different kind of kinds of groups right now. And I'm going to do this full time in no time and everybody get out of my way. Give me the ball. I'm going all the way. Let's go. Mm -hmm. And before I knew it, I was, I, I kind of slid into being 10 out of 10 maximum level stress without even noticing. Mm -hmm. And this happened just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like booking podcasts and I'm doing all this stuff. And then this thing started to flare up for me where it was like, whoa, 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 who are you to be doing this? And it was, it was just a process of really sitting with that and recognizing what was going on. And, and to be honest, in the past, that feeling has really stopped me. Um, there's a lot of times where I'll just throw myself headfirst into things, thinking that I don't have that side of myself that comes up, that imposter. And I'm going, 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 going. And then when it comes on, it, it's so powerful that I can sometimes talk myself out of doing the thing at all. Um, so for me, it's really just about not quitting. Don't, don't stop, keep creating, but just slow down and honor, honor your pace and honor your rhythm and honor the fact that, you know, you do have this part of you that feels this way. So how do you, how do I stay in the game and just keep finding ways to take on challenges and, and that are, that are bite-sized that, that I can, that I can, I can win, right. Instead of it being too big and retreating and retracting and stopping making content altogether. Hi, everyone. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Brandon Schmidt. For those who haven't heard, I'm thrilled to announce some exciting news. My website has just launched, and you can find it at renofmen.com. That's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, -E like Renaissance of Men, but shorter, renofmen.com. And on it, you can find lots of great information about who I am, what the Renaissance of Men is all about, and what I hope to offer to this moment. There are two pages of note you'll want to check out. The first is the Campfire page, where I discuss my coaching and community offerings like my men's group called The Council, my deep listening service, and my custom-designed one-on-one coaching program where I help you generate your personal renaissance. There are a number of testimonials as well from men who've worked with me, and it's incredibly fulfilling to read their inspiring words. The second page to visit is the library, where I list all the books, leaders, communities, and podcasts that compose this renaissance we're living through. I didn't start the renaissance. Far from it. I just gave it a name and hopefully with your help, a shared vision. 
That's all for now. If you like this podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so we can expand this renaissance we're sharing to more men. It's pretty simple. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just click the five-star button. And if you have a spare moment, leave a written review. That really goes a long way with the men we're trying to reach. Thanks so much. And let's get back to the conversation with Brendan Schmidt of Masculine Revival. That's what your emotional awareness grants you, is this ability to acknowledge in yourself, I am feeling this way, keep going. Because there are a lot of male leaders out there, not necessarily in the Renaissance or Revival, but there are a lot of male leaders that say, I'm on my grind, I'm on my grind, grind in 24-7, grind. And there is something to that for sure. And anything worth doing, you know, is worth investing a lot of time in then you do, there will be a grind to advance in it. But at the same time, there's a way that we can grind ourselves down while grinding. And I don't know that a lot of men have the emotional awareness to acknowledge, what am I feeling right now? Oh, this is exhaustion. Oh, this is level nine or 10 stress. You know, this is being emotionally cut off and distant from people because I just don't have any ability to feel anything because I'm grinding so hard. Like, for example, like I love David Goggins, right? David Goggins is amazing. But you know what I mean? Like that guy has done incredible stuff for many years. At the same time, I don't know that that's a guy that I would necessarily feel like I'd be able to sit down and have like a a heartfelt conversation with, assuming that we were, oh, maybe, I don't know. I don't know him well. I don't know him at all, actually. But he doesn't see, he seems like the guy that grinds himself into the stratosphere. And some men are wired like that but it's a very small number of, of men and people in general that are wired that, like that. And I think a lot of men who aren't wired like that will look at someone who is and try to emulate it and they run themselves over in the process. And, and, and the, uh, the result is causing more agony for themselves just in general. As I have done many times <laughs> because I've very much looked up to those types of men as well, right? Like that Kobe Bryant Mamba mentality, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how much work there is. I'm just going to keep going and I'm never going to stop. And David Goggins, like, you know, my, my leg li- literally break, but I'm just going to keep running anyways. <laughs> yeah. And it's great if, if, if you can do that and get the results, then, Hey man, all the power to you. But for, for myself, I hit a point of breakdown, burnout, and I just, I, I can't, you know, and I, I hit that, I hit those walls. So I've, I've kind of had to, out of necessity, I've really been forced to figure out what, what is going on internally for me when, when this stuff comes up and what, what do I do with it? Otherwise, you know, I would just, I feel like I would just perpetually start and stop, start and stop. What do you do with it when it comes up? Like what are some of your self-care things? Well, right now it's really just been sitting down and paying attention. I'll even just lay on my bed and just breathe and just be present with myself. Um, because I think, part part of the part of the impulse that I have when that part of me comes up, which I really feel is it's a wounded childlike part of myself that, like I said, doesn't want to be seen. And my impulse often as a man is to just cut that off, to just be done with it. Like, how do I, how do I remove this? How do I never feel like this again? Because mm-hmm. if I never felt like this again, I would be way more productive. I could get way more shit done. But again, it's like, it's, it's a, whether I like it or not, it's a part of me. So I think for me, it's really just recognizing it and giving it some space and just being like, okay, like I, I hear you and okay, I, let, let's slow down, right? Let's just, let's just 
maybe instead of doing four groups, you can do one group and do that one group really well. Or mm-hmm. um, how, how do I take things off my plate and just find a more sustainable rhythm? Because I do, I have a lot of fire, a lot of drive, a lot of passion and intensity. And I think sometimes I can burn a little bit too bright and just not even notice that I'm doing it. So it, it's, it's very much just a, a mindfulness practice for me. And that's like a daily thing for you or just when it, uh, as an as needed kind of thing? Very much as needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like I'm, I'm really getting better and better at noticing, okay, like I, I'm, I'm very triggered right now. I'm very activated. Like how do I, okay, what, what do I need to, what do I need to do to get back to center? I think that's really important, especially for creating the kind of content that you do. Uh, and there's lots of different men that make lots of different stuff in this world of male development that we're in. But the ability to write content and create graphics that really speak on a deeper level, on a deeper aesthetic level, requires a lot of focus and a lot of time and a lot of care. That's the word. The word is care. It's not just about dashing off a few words, you know, a few bro words on your phone and, and posting an image of you looking hard or something like that to produce this content. There are many, there are men who do something like that and they do it very well, but to produce content with a certain aesthetic requires a lot of emotional and mental energy to do. Uh, it's actually surprising. Yeah. And, and very much as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm figuring out what my, what my message is because I think I, I just want to be really, really careful and really mindful about, what I'm putting out there because the, you know, the follower count is increasing and I do have people reaching out asking me for advice and opinions and perspectives. And I've been thinking recently, like would the world be a better place if everybody adopted traditional views? And I, I honestly can't answer that. I don't necessarily think I'm even advocating for that. To me, it's really getting as close to the objective good as I can. Like what would, what, what could, you know, almost everybody say, this is a good thing. And for me, that really is, as a man, have a family, you know, be a good father, raise good kids, wake up every day and do your best, uh, try to be the best man that you can be. Like these things are just, they're timeless and they're, they're foundational and they're fundamental and they're never going to change. And for me right now, I'm, I'm very much in my own journey. I'm just, I'm just starting there. Like the, these are the pillars. Like this is where I want to put energy. And I think men in general would be well served to do that. And then from that, from that foundation, then start branching out and think, and think, you know, what, what now, like, what's my message now? What, what do I want to do now? Mm -hmm. And what do I want to be? What do I want to embody? You know, there's this joke, you know, to do is to be, to be is to do, do be, do be, do There's There's that one. But I think that misses that you can, you can do something, you can be something, but when you embody it, there's a different level of becoming something. The diff- there's a different level of existing. And I think when you talk about the, the traditional values question, would the world be better off adopting traditional values? I think if we expand that idea beyond any particular, I guess you might say, religious faith of traditional values and examine traditional values from a more timeless uh, perspective and from a, uh, I guess, a, non, a non-ethnic perspective, like what, to whatever degree traditional values, excuse me, traditional values exist around the world in terms of fatherhood and family, 
if every man embodied that in the way that seemed best to him, I don't know. I think that might actually might lead to a better world as long as it wasn't one set of traditional values from one part of the world or one religion or one group imposing their particular manifestation of it on another. And that's where things, I think, get a bit mixed up. Yeah, and it's it's really hard to articulate that in an Instagram post with that much nuance, as, as you just expressed. <laughs> you can use that. Right? Like there, there's, limit, there's limitations. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, and you talked about, we were talking about the new age earlier, and there is something to what the new age was reacting to. Like it wasn't like Christianity or Catholicism was a perfect religion that had done nothing wrong for centuries. Quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, And it overreached quite significantly in many ways and generated a response that was some ways fostered culturally uh, for various forms of profit. But that also was like a, you know, these traditional values they're not working anymore. There's something decaying about them. And the, the human spirit is wanting to expand. And these traditional values, the way they'd been expressed for thousands of years, didn't have the capacity to expand with them at the time. So the New Age did actually have something to it. Because I tend to view things in terms of a process. Like maybe someone, uh, maybe traditional values won't be right for somebody. But you can certainly look at it as something you can put on for a little while and try it out and then move on from it. And so in the same way, you know, humanity had been wearing some form of traditional values basically forever until the 1960s came along. And I'm, I'm exaggerating, but the 1960s came along and blew all those out of the water. And it's possible that that was something that we needed to go through as a civilization to discard the traditional values, to let them just kind of sit there on the shelf for a little while until we could realize what was really good about them and pick those pieces back up again. Yeah, so... I guess the question is, where do we go from here, right? Because I think, you know, now I, I'm very much in the position of looking back and, say, and saying, wow, there's, there's so much value in what was. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, there was, there was a, a shadow side to it, right? Yeah. Like, I think, I think there were a lot of marriages that were together. Like, statistically, it's like, wow, they didn't get a divorce, but they were probably miserable. And there was you know, drug use and alcoholism and abuse going on. And, but hey, uh, we're still together for 50 years or 60 years or whatever it is, right? So it's like, I, and I also think that there were probably a lot of women that were quite creatively and spiritually stifled in those dynamics. So I think, yeah, it, 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 it has to be an improvisation moving forward, like t- taking, taking what was good and discarding the rest, right? I'm going to blow your mind right now because I have also had my mind blown. There is a book called The Myth of Male Power by Dr. Warren Farrell that I'm reading right now. Have you heard of this book? I think you actually mentioned it to me a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah, I did. That's right. In a, in a, in a DM. Okay. So I've been reading this book. Yeah. It, it's incredible. This man, and I'm not even all that far into it, maybe 15% of the way into it. He draws such incredibly fine distinctions that would not necessarily be obvious to someone on the outside looking in. So the first thing that he talks about is stage one relationships and stage two relationships. And what he said is for thousands of years, humans were in this stage one relationship where the relationship between, uh, meaning a marriage, was functional, meaning there were different roles that the men and women played. The the men, you know, uh, went and earned the money or brought home the food and the women took care of the children in the house. And 
in that equation, it wasn't necessarily expected that either partner would be fulfilled, that the men weren't going to be fulfilled, the women weren't going to be fulfilled, that it just wasn't part of the deal. Like, this is what we got to do to advance civilization. And we both accept that lack of fulfillment is just going to be part of it. So that's where the alcoholism and the drug abuse comes from. But are they necessarily happy? No, but they didn't get married with the expectation that they were going to be happy. That's something that came about in stage two relationships, which I think he put somewhere around the middle of the of the 20th century, where suddenly there's so much to go around. There's so much prosperity. We kind of ascend to the top of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing. And we can start thinking about things like, well, is my wife really my true flame, my twin flame? Like we can start asking <laughs> You know what I mean? And believe me, I know all. So, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Like oh, everyone's looking for the twin flame in the new age world. And, but people didn't used to ask that question. So now we're sitting on the side of the cultural divide where now in the, in the culture, it just kind of expected that a relationship between a man and a woman has to do so much more than it ever did in the past. That fulfillment is such an important part of it. And that wasn't necessarily true maybe for our parents, but definitely not for our grandparents. So we look back on our grandparents' relationships, you know, uh, the, the greatest generation, the generation that fought in World War II probably, and prior, and we say, they must have been miserable. It's like, well, they may not necessarily have been happy, but they didn't get married for happiness. That's our value judgment that we're projecting backwards onto them that they didn't necessarily feel was mm. lacking in any way. And so he lays all that out with, you know, statistics and numbers and stuff like that. And how actually the looking for fulfillment in a marriage, which I think is probably an idea we both encountered, the expecting to find fulfillment in your partner actually leads to more divorce because you'll never be able to find fulfillment in another person, right? Right. So, so do you say that stage one was functional and stage two is fulfillment? Yes. yes. Is that how he defines it? I think, I'm not sure if yeah. he uses the word fulfillment, but yeah, stage one is essentially marriages were primarily functional in nature and in order to create the next generation of children and to come together and, and reproduce. And it was only once society reached a level of prosperity that fulfill, like fulfill, romantic fulfillment, spiritual fulfillment even became part of the equation in the ways that we understand it now. So, and what was he, is he deeming that as like a, a forward progression or just as an observation of what happened? I think it's probably more of an observation. Yeah. He's not saying it's a bad thing. I okay. Yeah. I think he's just saying this is just right. what it is. And so, because he's, it, he, the book is, the book, of, The Myth of Male Power is fundamentally about undermining with data and analysis, the feminist argument of patriarchy. He says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. That's not how society is. It's actually not patriarchal at all. The scales are actually tilted very heavily against men. And he lays that out brilliantly. Uh, and a new edition of the book he wrote in 1993, actually. So this man, Warren Farrell, he was he was a feminist. He was really high up, like on the board of the National Organization of Women. And so he goes through his whole journey of just beginning to discover these things, which is too long to recount here. But then he wrote this book and suddenly he became like persona non grata, like you're not supposed to talk about this stuff. So people, so he lost his career and everything like that, but he still wrote this book. And so in talking about uh, how this image of patriarchy doesn't actually exist and it's heavily biased towards men as well. He gets into the marriage issue because he brings up exactly the point that you did, like, well, women weren't fulfilled being at the home and all that stuff. And he says like, 
men and women both weren't fulfilled. It wasn't like the man went off to work in the, in the coal mines or whatever and was fulfilled and the woman was frustrated because she was stuck. They were both miserable. That's not why they got into it. They didn't get into it for happiness. And it was only in our value judgments now in the modern era that we look back and say that in that particular way. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I feel that for sure. So function, be, like being functional and, and experiencing fulfillment, what do you think, what do you think that we should look for in relationships today then? Like for me, I guess for me, like I'm finding, I'm finding a lot of fulfillment in having a functional relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've tried to, I've tried to find fulfillment through the vehicle of relationship and definitely hit a lot of walls because like you said, I think it's a, it's just a huge burden to put on a woman mm-hmm. to have her be your source of fulfillment and happiness. I think like in my, in my, uh, one of those story sets that I did recently, you, you mentioned that we need to have like a, we need to take uh, traditionalism and, and give it a really modern twist, like in the ingenious level way, as you said. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just curious what you think some of those ways are. The reason why I use the word genius there is to say like, someone's going to be able to figure out this equation, but it's not me in this moment. <laughs> like, <laughs> someone's going to have yeah. a profound insight of how sure. we fuse these two things together. You know, honestly, I don't know. But another reason why I use the term reinvent masculinity, which I probably will change, but another reason why I use that term is I don't think that we can totally discard the, the recent past as in the past 20 years. I don't think that we can, I mean, we'll see. I mean, it seems like there's a giant movement of people going into the homestead world, myself probably included, which we can get into that. And if that's the case, then uh, traditional values will have to reign because when you're living close to the earth, the earth doesn't really allow for modern values because the earth does not work in a modern way. The earth works the way it does. But assuming that we're going to stay here in civilization, I don't think that it's really going to be practical to try and live a super traditional life embedded in the modern world or that we should throw out the notions of progress that we think are valuable for the past 20 years like in a great a great question a big unanswered question as well is well what about careers for women because the traditional world says that the woman stays home and many women are wanting this and i'm really looking forward to doing a podcast about it as well with wanting to stay at home and raise children and men going to work right so a big question is well should women be encouraged from childhood that to have careers or should they be discouraged from having careers? How does that play out? And I don't know, actually know how to answer that question, um, except to say that people have to, just, what's that? Said likewise. Yeah. And, but people just have to let it play out, you know, like, uh, Sabine Howard, I had him on my podcast, uh, maybe a month or so ago. And he, uh, he's a sculptor and he has a, a daughter and I think she's, she's a, a doctor now. And he was, he's been grappling with some of these questions because he's a classical uh, Renaissance figurative artist. And it's sort of like he was encouraging his daughter to go for the best career uh, she possibly could. Meanwhile, in his own life, he's trying to establish traditional values. How do you do anything but those two things at the same time? I got no idea. Yeah, I think, I think the freedom of choice is good. Like to give, to give a woman the, the ability to choose which path she wants to walk in life. I think to me, that seems that seems like a, a valid point. Um, I don't think a woman should be forced to do anything, but I think, I think encur- encouraging, encouraging a woman or, or at least, at least how about at least showing women that, that it's a choice, right? That, yeah. that, Hey, you can do this and this is, this is, this is noble and this is honorable. And there's, there's nothing 
it's not beneath you as a woman to aspire to be a mother or to be a homemaker. In fact, it's beautiful. And if you want to do that, that I think that should be celebrated and supported. And, you know, we should, we should see the value in that. Yeah. Because the, the way that feminism said it was liberating women is that, well, no, and you're not actually liberating them. You're just burdening them with another set of non-optional choices or another non-optional choice. Like if you don't go to work, you're a bad woman. That's actually the message of feminism. And women will say that like, well, I don't want to be a bad woman. So I'll go work, even though maybe women do want to have children and stay home, right? That they may have that organic desire within themselves, but then feminism tells them like, nope, you can't want that. You'll be a bad woman. It's like, well, how is that liberating anybody if you're just telling them what to do? Yeah. And, and also saying, you'll be a good woman if you don't have children because mm-hmm. having children is contributing to overpopulation. Oh. So don't have children. Fuck. Right? Yeah. So it's it, like, 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 I think like just in a, in a grounded practical level, like if, if we just gave women the choice, cause I feel like it's actually funny that they don't have a choice now where they're, how many women do you know besides like this, this corner of the internet are representing uh, the stay at home mother at all in a positive light? Like prior to finding the traditional community on Instagram, I didn't, I didn't even know that this was a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, in person, like women that have decided to become homemakers, I don't know what the right word is, but we'll use that one now because I think we can probably come up with a better word, but to become homemakers and to beautify a home and to raise children and to be present in their children's lives and really be loving and, and there and be committed to them uh, full time. How many do I know doing that and proudly doing that that aren't on Instagram? I don't know, probably zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like um, my, my, my girlfriend at the moment, prior to meeting me, she had she had no idea that this was a thing either. And she was very much just, you know, I want to make, I want to make six figures. And I think her mother, her mother was to, to some degree feminist in the, in the mind for sure. And she Mm -hmm. took, took on some of that programming. So it was very much like, you know, I just want to go to work and, and be really good at my job and make a lot of money. And I don't want to have kids Mm -hmm. because if I have kids and that might get in the way of the career. Right. And, and also, uh, I don't, maybe I won't be a good mother. And then it's like, I, I said to her, you know, motherhood, motherhood is like an intrinsic thing for a woman. Like you can't, you can't really mess it up. Like you just, you have the instincts, right? Like you, you're, you're hardwired to be a mother. So just, if you distrust that, I'm sure you'll be fine. I agree. I mean, we're hardwired to be fathers as well. Uh, but I think it's rare for women to grow up without a mother in the household. Uh, it's uh, less rare for women to grow up with a men and women to grow up with a father in the household. So I guess mothering is more is more common to model in some ways than fathering. But that's a really profound statement mm-hmm. that mothering is instinctual in women. It's not something that I guess I'd ever really considered to the depth I'm thinking about it right now. Please say more about that because, um, yeah, I'm, because you're in that you're heading into that phase right now. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, I mean it's it's intrinsic isn't it like i think uh i talk about the distinction between for women it's like what i've what i've come to see is that women are feminine in the body and feminist in the mind (laughs) uh so so there's like a a clash of worlds for most modern women where they pick up these ideas somewhere along the line and to varying degrees they're 
their minds are quite infected by mm-hmm. these no these feminist notions, right? And I think the work for a woman who wants to walk a more traditional path is to sort of identify and then uproot those ideas because uh, they're very contrary to the path of having a family and being a mother. So I've, I've seen it. I've witnessed it firsthand with, with my partner now where she, she had these ideas that she didn't really know how, where they came from or how she, she got them, but they were hers. She was, she was owning those ideas and um, it, it didn't really take much. Like it, it, it wasn't super deeply rooted for her, but um, they were, they were there and they were very much in the way of, of her innate desire to, to be a mother. And since she's challenged those ideas, she is now really passionate about the, the idea of, of pursuing motherhood. Well, it sounds like she's found a good partner to help her with that too. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, Cause this is how these yeah, things- it's, it's been quite, quite the awakening for her. Uh, and how long, how long have you guys been together? It's a definitely a newer relationship. We've been together for four months, mm-hmm. but in that, in that time, she's changed in quite fundamental ways. So do you think, well, I'm going to, how much do you think you had an influence on her? Um, well, about bragging. <laughs> well, no, just- I think, I think, I think it was, it was largely me to be honest. Like, I think she, she didn't really know until she knew. And this is a, this is a fascinating topic for me because I, I spent a year and a half dating and looking for like a quote unquote traditional woman or a traditionally minded woman. And I just wasn't finding it. Right. And I started, I started to realize that they're more or less unicorns nowadays, right. like, unless you find the, the pastor's daughter, mm-hmm. um, you're going to have to, you're going to have to take a woman who has like the raw ingredients and then have the leadership ability to bring, bring her femininity out of her more and more and, and show her that like, Hey, this is a beautiful path and you're likely going to feel happier embracing this. Mm -hmm. I guess after like really looking like I, for a long time, I had a really long checklist of these are all the things that I'm looking for in a, in a trad wife. And I was being very forward with that with women. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was getting called a misogynist quite often. My bet. <laughs> and uh, I eventually learned that it was more about looking for women that had just, just characteristics like being open-minded, not being super... Uh, like I think some women, are, they can be very stubborn and they, they like to battle and mm-hmm. uh, be combative with ideas. And it's like, that, that, that for me is just it's quite exhausting. It's like, you know, just, just hear me out. Like this is, this is the path that I'm walking and being very straightforward about that and saying like, Hey, I want to be a father. I want to have a family. I want to uh, do things in a traditional way. And if that's not something that interests you, then, you know, you don't have to walk this path with me, Mm -hmm. but this is where I'm going. And if you'd like to come, you can, you can be my guest and kind of just slowly introducing ideas and, and, and concepts has been my approach and, and, and really gauging responses to right? Like, is she being receptive? Is she, is she closed off? And in my case, uh, my girlfriend has been really, really on board with everything that I've put in front of her. That's amazing. 
Yeah, she she's also on Instagram. I think she's embracing femininity, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how I. Yeah, even that, even that. <laughs> yeah. Like that was, you know, like she when I when I, like I said when I met her, she's like, I don't I don't want to have kids and I want to earn six figures, and then two months into our relationship, she starts an Instagram page called Embracing Femininity. <laughs> and her her goals have very much changed where, you know, now she's wanting to be, she she wants to be a, a full-time mother and, you know, she wants to get married and, and it's a complete, it's a complete change for her. And I've definitely seen her become a lot more joyful and, and happy in her life. And uh, also she's really struggled with, with purpose, right? Like, right trying to fit herself into what the world is, is, is expecting of her and then not really seeing a path that felt fulfilling and seeing, seeing this path, she's like, wow, like I can, I think she can really see herself living that life and being happy. So it's given her a lot of purpose and meaning in her life as well. That's so great. And the reason why I asked, you know, what degree influence you had is that, um, you know, whether these were questions that she was already asking on some level, it sounds like maybe on some level, maybe some subconscious level versus like, you know, if you were getting someone who had no inner questioning nature, but that's almost a better thing than if you were to have just met the, the trad wife, you know, through however you meet them, probably not on Tinder, but um, you know, however you meet a trad wife these days, maybe like you said, it's the pastor of your church, but it, it's almost more appropriate that you met a woman who had to go on her own journey like you went on yours. True. Very true. Yeah. That, that, uh, there's that connection, right? Because I think what's, what's the value of family to you if you just came from one, Mm -hmm. I I think it's like you and I with our, with our personal journeys in life, right? Like we've both had to figure out for ourselves what masculinity means to us, uh, in my case, because of the absence and, um, also, you know, not, not having a family, not, not having a father, not having a, that, that strong nuclear family. I, I really, really want one. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of the completion of my own healing is, is creating that for myself and finding, finding a woman who also comes from an interesting family dynamic. There's, there's a really inflated value that we both have on that because of the absence. So yeah, it is a, it's a really, it's a really cool thing to share with somebody for sure. I mean, we talked about, healing generational wounds and what greater generational wounds these are there these days than the lack of a child growing up in a strong family. This idea that, you know, we didn't really have them in the ways that we needed and the want to pass that along and how deeply that's tied into everything we're talking about, including the notion of inner work. Like I don't want to pass on the wounding that I got from my parents I want to go get the things that I needed to get that I wasn't given in childhood. I want to fill those holes or take out those things that hurt or release them or whatever so that I can be the parent that my parents weren't able to be for me. And so that I can find a wife and a mother that wants to be the kind of mother that my mother wasn't for me and to give that gift to a child. And that I think is probably one of the most beautiful things about this synthesis of traditionalism and modernity, this idea that we didn't used to look if in stage one relationships, as we talked about, the parents probably didn't look or know to look even at their nuclear family 
as a gift to give a child. It's like, oh, we just get married and have kids. That's what you do, <laughs> you know? Right. But, right. but now, this is actually really interesting. Now, you and I, and I'm sure many other men, in fact, I know many other men, are looking at the stable two-parent household as this profound gift to give a child in a way that humanity has never realized before. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm sitting here nodding my head because it's true that it's always just been what we've done and there's not really been a lot of thought about it. It's just what we've done. And then now, I think just with that minor disturbance, like you mentioned, starting in the 60s, we've really had to reconnect to like, why, why do we do this? And should I do this? And do I want to do this? And when you actually have a strong answer to those questions, it makes it so much more meaningful. Well, it, it's the power of choice. People for centuries didn't have a choice in having kids. That's just what you do, right? And then people were given this, or they're trying to force this choice of people not having a choice to have kids really like, no, you're going to overpopulate the planet and resource consumption and all that. So you don't have a choice to have kids, you know, don't have children, you know, et cetera. But now the reclaiming of that choice of saying, okay, so I've looked at the traditional lifestyle, which is forced to have children. And I've looked at the modern lifestyle, which is forced not to have children, really. I choose to have children and I get to own that choice. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really beautiful path for sure. And it's one that I'm really looking forward to because I think that uh, may, maybe it's the, it's the final nail in the coffin of my own, of my own healing is, is breaking, breaking that pattern and really being the father that I never had, right? And making sure that my, my kids get the importance of, of showing up the right way for their kids. And it, it's, it's, it's amazing too. It's amazing too, man, because I, I think about this sometimes how it's, it's so easy for things to go wrong. Like you could have generation upon generation upon generation that get it just right. And then you have that one, that one break in the chain and how that can ripple through time and space for so long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just, it's such a precious, I think like, yeah, our, our, our inheritance is, it's so precious and it's sacred, right? It's like what, what we do with the gift of life. It's so much bigger than just ourselves. It really ripples forwards, forwards and backwards. And I love that. I'm getting a sense of the, the new age ideas, although those are not new age ideas. It's a way of looking holistically at life that I think is probably one of the blessings of that world, which is to have a more holistic vision of the planet and of people to say, to be able to say something like these things ripple forward and backward generationally and to know the truth of that and to really sink into the beauty of life. And I think that is one of the things I was talking about earlier, how so many of these ideas are processes we go through and there's nothing wrong with going to explore the, the new age world or the traditional world or anything for what it is to see what's of value in it and to walk, to walk through that path as you and I have both done through various times in our lives and say, you know what? A lot in there was useless, but there are a few ideas and a few perspectives I took out of there that really stuck with me. And I think you just, you just nailed one of them just to think in this, you know, to think in this historical evolutionary kind of process where there's this chain that goes on for thousands of years and then this chain gets broken and then it ripples forwards in time we're used to thinking about things that way but to also think that the break ripples backwards in time as well and now in this moment we get to bring these pieces together and create something new like that's a that's such a beautiful idea and i don't know that someone coming from a strictly traditional background 
would be able to think in that way. So, yeah, to fully grasp that on an intellectual level, like what what's actually happening here. It's just yeah, it's just a given, right? Yeah, it's definitely it's a huge, it's it's a huge it's a weight, it's a burden, it's a lot of responsibility, and it's also a huge blessing and a huge gift, right? And uh, it's what we what we do with it. Which part is the gift? Um, the gift is the op- the, the opportunity mm-hmm. that we can that we can that we can make what we want, and that we can that you know that no matter what you inherit, that you can create something beautiful out of it. And which part is the burden? Just that res- that responsibility of of um, thinking thinking about and connecting to the fact that uh, of all the the blood and the sweat and the tears and the toil that have gone into your own, your own existence and you know to think about yourself to zoom out from that perspective and then to be sitting there watching porn mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. <laughs> and your, your ancestors are like what like what the fuck is going on right now mm-hmm. um like that that's a it, it's a it's a burden because it's like there's just there's so much behind you. There's so much weight behind you of the, of the past. And, um, every, everything that we do matters in that sense. Like it, it, we're the inheritors and it's up to us. I feel that weight for sure. But I think there's also like, I'm ready for it. You know, like I was made for it as heavy as the burden is to, I think, right the wrongs of the past is probably one way of looking at it to knit back the threads that were broken, I think is another way. There's a lot to that. There's a lot of responsibility to that. But what I've been saying to to men in particular is that every generation has its war. And, uh, you know, our parents probably had Vietnam. Certainly that was my parents' war. And then their parents had World War II and their parents had World War I. And we're very fortunate to be living in an era where there haven't been so many large scale conflicts. I was saying this with uh, one of my recent, oh, with uh, Clausen Smith uh, and how the notion of getting into a large scale conflict in an era of human history where we have not just nuclear bombs, but drones and tanks and all these really horrible, horrible machines of destruction. That's kind of good that we don't have the notion of uh, conflict in that way, that kind of war. We have a spiritual war. And it doesn't mean mm. that it's any less violent or that there are fewer casualties. Maybe there are fewer physical casualties in terms of deaths, but certainly one of the posts that I want to write for my blog is you are a dead man. And the meaning of that is, is a double, uh-huh. you know what I mean? You are a dead man. Like you're walking around dead. And certainly we've seen that's the casualty of the spiritual war that we're in. And, you know, especially, given that we're recording this on January 21st, um, I think the nature of that war has probably become more clear now than ever. Absolutely. It's, it's funny you said the, the dead man thing because we actually, we do that process in, in the brotherhood as well. Oh, wow. Where you, uh, you walk up to a man and you look him in the eyes and you say, you actually say, I am a dead man. And you say it to each other and then you go around the room and you say it to every guy and it's about just connecting to your own mortality, right? Like we all, we are dead. Like we're going to die, right? Like it's, we're here for a limited amount of time. So it's, yeah, it's interesting that you said that. Oh, wow. That's really intense. That's really intense. I, I meant that. And I also meant, you know, like the, um, like the kid who's 
stuck in his bedroom masturbating to porn several times a day or the the man who goes to his cubicle job with decent enough pay but that doesn't inspire him spiritually who watch you know watches Netflix all night like maybe that person is alive but there's a there's a spiritual death taking place and so yeah to that extent like you and I have both been dead men in a way you know we had to bring ourselves and we were brought to life yeah and uh spiritually spiritually that's still, that's still an area that I'm exploring since breaking away from the, the new age a number of years ago just personally I'm in a space where I, I have a really deep respect and appreciation for Christianity and and the values and that's been growing and yet I wouldn't I wouldn't fully say that I'm a Christian mm-hmm. and uh I'm still I'm still searching in that way I guess you could say and I yeah I don't I don't I don't fully know where I'm going to end up in that regard yeah it's a big it's a big open question for a lot of men right now I'm talking with uh, the guy who hosts the Oaks and Oaths podcast. He also has an Instagram account and he and I have had some uh, really great exchanges on Instagram in the DMs. And I was just struck with this inspiration. Like you, I, I have a very strong connection now with Christian ideals. In fact, I was talking to my best friend the other night, you know, I, I send him, he lives in New Zealand and uh, we met when I lived there briefly. And I would, we would send each other like long voice messages on Telegram like voice texts, I guess they're called. And uh, I sent him like 40 minutes of messages just laying out the Christian worldview because he was saying that though he was raised Christian, he has kind of become a bit disillusioned with it because of all the things that have been revealed, not necessarily about Christianity, but about the world over the course of say the past year uh, with all the, the crises, the way that it's waking people up. It's like, where does that put his faith? And I was laying out for him this is why the Christian faith appeals to me in response to all these things that we've been living through. And, you know, here I am walking around. I mean, I, you know, it's Sunday. So like I'm in my pajamas and I just put on an overcoat and just went for a walk and just walking around, you know, ranting like a crazy person into my phone about <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I was, I was baptized back in September, which was a beautiful experience and life-changing actually. But I, I also have trouble identifying as a Christian. I don't really, I don't really know why. Like it's something that I'm very passionate about. And I, I don't know, I haven't quite figured that out, but certainly a lot of men are, are, are struggling with that. But in that process of questioning, a lot of men are going over to paganism. And so Oaks and Oaths is, is a big, uh, he's a pagan himself and his, his Instagram account, his podcast is about paganism. And there's this ancient historical beef between Christians and pagans, probably because Christians conquered the pagans and, and killed a lot of them and eradicated their religion as Christian, well, quote unquote Christians did. And, uh, but also there's a, there's a competing set of worldviews in some ways. And so a lot of men who are very disillusioned with Christianity are going over to paganism and there's a lot of animosity. And I was just kind of struck with this idea that, you know what, I think it's about time for Christians and pagans to kind of come together and start having a, a conversation of mutual respect because we got a band together for uh, what, what Clausen Smith described as the anti-spirit that's spreading across the world. And there's no time for brotherhoods of spiritually awakened men, whatever their faiths, there's no time for them to be arguing with each other about their faiths. We got to come together or is this third thing is going to take us both down. And so I think I'm excited to have, yeah, exactly. So I'm excited to have these conversations to begin building these bridges. So yeah, unity in the face of a common enemy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Part of it is, is the new age community, um, 
is a manifestation of, it's almost like a form of atheism. Like I, I don't remember them talking a whole lot about God. They kind of talked a lot about the universe. Well, it's actually anti-biblical. It's, it's uh, not, it's not the absence of God. It's the fact that you are God. Right. I am God. You are God. God is in everything. And the thing about new ageism that's interesting is that is how anti-biblical it is. Mm -hmm. It's, it's about, it's really like the religion. It's a religion. New ageism is a religion. I would say, and it's, it's about the worship of self. It's Mm -hmm. self-empowerment, self-healing, self-love. Everything comes to the self. And it's interesting because it's, it's all about personal growth and something that I've noticed upon leaving that movement is how narcissistic people become to get into new ageism. It's all about healing and the next layer that's coming up and the next, the next process, the next realization, the next truth that's being uncovered. And it's just a never ending journey of like me, 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 me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very, uh, um, it, it doesn't allow a person in some ways to transition through stages of life. Cause I think, it's prolonged adolescence, right? Like it's healthy for a while to develop your identity as a, as an ego, as an I, but then eventually you should transition as an adult and start to broaden your focus to, to an other, like, you know, like your wife, your, your kids, your community. And yeah, I really, I really see that running rampant in new ageism. Mm-hmm. And also to a higher law, like new age, there's no rules. You know, there's vague notions of karma that you don't want to do a bad thing because you don't want to create bad karma. And you don't, if a bad thing happens to you, it's as a result of past get bad karma and good karma. Like there's a, it's a very basic form of morality, but I don't remember there being any defined boundaries. It was like, Oh, well, I'm going to take a little bit of, from what I understand is Sufism. And I'm going to take a little bit of Buddhism and I'm going to take a little bit of, of Hinduism as well. And I'm going to talk vaguely about Christ consciousness and I'm going to form this religion <laughs> out of it. Right. And that's going to be my religion and nothing in this stricture that I'm going to put around myself is going to put any boundaries on me at all. And if I'm, if I go do something crazy, well, it's just me exploring my creativity and the universe flowering into being or something like that versus like, no, you've actually transgressed this kind of boundary. (laughs) You know what I mean? And the soul knows, the soul knows when you've done it. And so people get sunk into these deeper and deeper pits of doing things trying to repeatedly justify something they know is wrong in their conscience, but that they are able to justify to themselves in their minds. And so that leads to um, some very, some people that, that wear the clothing, let's say, that live the lifestyle, but that they call themselves spiritual, but they're not spiritual people at all, unfortunately. Yeah. It's, it's pure. It, everything is just very relative, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, my interpretation is just as valid as your interpretation, even if our interpretations don't overlap at all. They're both true at the same time equally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, how do you, yeah, how do you function? And I think we were talking about um, how effeminate new ageism can make men. And that, that's part of the reason is that there's just no, it doesn't inspire any discipline or structure or order. It's very much just like, just pick whatever, pick whatever you want and whatever you feel. And it's very feeling oriented as well. Like, uh, your feeling, your feelings are your guide, right? Your, your gut is your guide. And so you kind of just get free reign to, you can justify any behavior. You can, you can do anything you want, like, like you're saying, and it, it's okay because we're just here to 
um, grow spiritually through having experiences. And for me, I, I think eventually it's just like to what end, right? Like, where is this going? Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere, right? I mean, it starts looping in yeah. all of these. Um, also, uh, what does Terrence McKenna call it? Archaic revival, you know, because that was a whole thing. Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for what Terrence McKenna did and talked about, but I think a lot of his ideas got really twisted because, you know, the New Age community, especially once you start going to festivals, people wear this kind of tribally kind of torn clothing kind of gear and they have, you know, dreadlocks and it's sort of this regressive sort of, tribally kind of thing with these you know esoteric eastern kind of concepts that no one really fully understands and, and all this stuff and people get trapped in it they get absolutely trapped in it and then it's a it's a it's a really rife environment for uh anti-male anti-masculine attitudes as well and so you get the classic women are goddesses and they're perfect in all ways even when they're not and men i have to do this kind of nice guy kind of dance of like, well, you have to be really nice and speak with such a soft voice, but you still want to get laid. You know what I mean? So you have to do that dance and it's just to walk around in it now and to experience it is like, oh my God, the amount of mental illness in here is just, how could I have survived? Yeah. That was the word that came up for me too, is mental illness. How, how ripe of a breeding ground it is for that when you're, you're so open-minded and there's just no, like you said, no boundaries. Right. And then you start adding in like ayahuasca and hardcore hallucinogenic drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, like I, I've seen it personally. Like I've had, I've had friends that, you know, I, I went to a festival with a friend once and he did a large, large dose of MDMA and he was mm-hmm. really going through his own spiritual opening, I guess you could say. And he's never been the same since. And this was like eight years ago. Right. And it's, it's very common. Like he's just, his uh, his mind opened up too far or he's kind of emotionally traumatized from what he went through or he somehow biochemically damaged his his mind with the with the MDMA uh it was in my from my view it was that he had a massive heart opening uh-huh. like he his heart opened from the MDMA in a way that he had never experienced and was very very underprepared for Okay. And he probably had some some sort of huge surge of emotion, emotional uprising from from something in his past that just caught him off guard. And I think he just freaked out and his mind freaked out and he tried to like regain control, but you can't really regain control when you're under a substance on the on a substance like that. Yeah. So ever, ever since then he's been very it's like, you know, that whole like kind of glazed over eyes. Like, yeah, brother, every, everything's good, man. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm in, I'm in perfect peace and nothing can disturb my perfect peace. And it's like, you can tell that they're angry. You can tell that they're actually sad or irritated and there's just no ability to, to recognize it or own it. Like he's just been like that ever since. There's so much of that. And even, not even with people who accidentally overdose on a substance where, you know, the, the highest value is peace and, oh, it's all good. It's all good. Oh, it's so negative. You know, I just, I just don't vibe with that. You know, it's like, well, there are some things about life that actually are negative and that are difficult. And for all the emotional openness that I experienced, uh, quote unquote, in that world, there was absolutely no ability to deal with the realities of life. 
And what I actually came to discover over time was a couple, a couple things. Uh, the people who are really sort of quote unquote up uh, high up in the hierarchy of the new age world and any particular new age community, inevitably they have tons of money. They have tons of money. They're inevitably almost always like, you know, in any particular in-person community. And they're also strangely the most good looking people as well. This hierarchy, Mm -hmm. you know, flat hierarchy, they're always the best looking. And what's so interesting to me about that is that they use their beauty, their physical beauty as a form of power. And what that shows is how surface concerned that community ultimately is. Uh, and it's no, and that's not necessarily to say that it's any different in that way from the mainstream world, because the mainstream world is very obsessed with physical beauty as well, sometimes to an unhealthy degree. But the New Age community pretends that it's about other things, when in reality, if you peel a little bit behind the surface, you know, you find the same things. You find money and beauty and, and power, but everyone just pretends it's not there because it's so negative to talk about. And so, you know, people get upset when I say things like that. Oh, I can, I can very much test that myself being a part of a, a spiritual community here in, in Vancouver because the, me, the men's work that we do, I think there's, there's obviously a spiritual component to it. And mm-hmm. I can, there is, there is very much a hierarchy and the people at the top are, you know, they're, they're attractive, they're good looking, they're charming, they're charismatic and they're intelligent and they all hang out together and they're on the in group and it very much has a high school clicky kind of energy to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I hear, I hear where you're coming from. I don't have a problem with that for what it is. I just don't like that when you say you're one thing and you really are something else. That's the thing that bothers me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And being able to, like you said too, being able to fully acknowledge life in, in the hardship and, and the bliss. Yeah, and, and find beauty in both of them. Right. So the, the question that's coming to mind that I had earlier was, okay, so you're, you're in this new age community, deep in the new age community. Like I can tell by the terms and the words that you're using, especially having a 5,000 person Facebook page, like you were way deep in that community because I've been in there too. So you go through this transformation and this awakening and then you start shit posting memes on Instagram. <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> well, that was that was actually there was multiple years in between, and okay. it was a it was a it was a steady and consistent process for me of of really I think just like I was so deep into it, and what snapped me out of it was my my twin flame relationship ended abruptly. I was in Jamaica with her, and she broke up with me and said that she wanted to continue traveling on her own. So I had to uh, get bailed out on a flight home back to Vancouver because I had spent all my money doing, doing this trip with her. So I got back to Vancouver in the winter and I had no, no material possessions left because I had sold everything to go do this trip. And I had to go get a job working at a warehouse and I was a vegan. And I quickly realized that being a vegan in the winter while doing a physical job wasn't a very functional ideology. So, um, so it it was just this steady process of like, oh, this doesn't really work in real life. <laughs> right. And that just kept going. And it was the same, it was also relational, like having dating very new age women and kind of just seeing these these patterns play out over and over and just how ineffective some of the stuff was. And eventually I kind of got a, got a bit of, ch- of a chip on my shoulder too, where it was just like, you know what, this is kind of bull bullshit and 
that was my message for a while was like speaking against the 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 whole stereotypical new age thing like being soft-spoken and oh brother what are you feeling what's coming up for you right now like (laughs) that that whole that whole thing and saying like you can be masculine and be spiritual and and that was kind of my message but uh i think it was just honestly it was just a steady process of for me one of my highest values has always been the truth Mm -hmm. what's the truth Mm -hmm. and it's been painful and very difficult and there's been times i've had really intense existential crises for sure where i've just completely i i I very much throw myself into things headfirst and see where i end up and it's a blessing and a curse because it's definitely brought me a lot of suffering at different points in my life but um i've just kept going and in that in that pursuit it just led me to more right-wing conservative traditional views so that that was kind of the process that's the that's the where the pursuit of truth takes you same for me same for me it's like my highest value my highest value is the truth and if that means i have to shed skins if i have to evolve and grow in order to stay in tune with the truth the truth is more important to me than being right and I think a lot of people have gotten stuck in that, but I'm very fortunate to know several people that I met in the new age community that have literally gone through that exact same process. Like in in some ways, I think um, uh, the former, the recently outgoing U S president, I don't know that I would, I don't want my podcast to get flagged anymore for even saying, (laughs) we'll see, but we'll see what shakes out with that. But given that it's January 21st, we'll see that he was a real spiritual test for a lot of people. And it's several I know of like, how committed are you to the truth? And a lot of people did not, especially in the new age community, did not pass that test. And they got really, really mad with the ones who did pass that test. Now, the truth is an ongoing journey. It's not a, it's not a dead end. You always stick with it. But the truth definitely left one side and moved to the other side. And I followed it. And it sounds like you did as well. Yeah, that, that was exactly what happened for me. And um, there was actually a woman that I met in probably 2015, I met her virtually and she runs the page over at Woman Illuminated on Instagram. Okay. I don't know if you follow her. She's got a pretty big following and it's funny because one one day randomly, I just got a follow from her and then I go and I check her page and I'm like, oh, that's, that's that woman that I met five years ago and she was ultra new age as well and we had, we had a couple of phone conversations and stuff like that and now she's uh, seems seems as though she's Christian. She's speaking about things from a very very traditional perspective. Whoa! So it, it's yeah, it's it's similar. Where it's like it, it's and it's reaffirming for me as well that I, I, we really connected at that time many years ago, and we were both pursuing truth. And to see, you know, we split up for five years, never heard from her again, and then it's like, oh, there she is, and she she's on the same exact wavelength I am. Um, that's that's a, been a reaffirming thing to see uh, actually quite a lot of that in, in my life. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the, this is the revival. This is the Renaissance is, you know, we were living in these, I can't say that the ideas were necessarily wrong either. Like uh, this is one of the things that I grapple with is, was I wrong about my classical liberal beliefs for all this time? Or did we do some sort of timeline jump where everyone that I thought was a good guy was actually a bad guy. It's really hard to believe that, you know, with 
I wouldn't say that I had incredible discernment, but I worked pretty hard on my discernment. Was I deceived or did something fundamentally shift outside me in the universe? And that's something that I go back and forth on. You know what I mean? But certainly um, there is something happening amongst the people that have been passionately committed to. And I don't know that it's very well talked about, uh, but I do know that uh, a guy, Jack Murphy, uh, wrote a book called From Democrat to Deplorable. And he talks about how he was also once very liberal and uh, became uh, started voting red in 2016 and all the costs of that in his life. And I know that there must be something in the new age community as well for people who real who were in that world pursuing truth and like, well, the truth is not here anymore. But I I'm really surprised to hear that a, a woman who's so deep, a woman especially and so deep in the new age community, coming out and and moving into the traditional life like. That's a, that's, that's a mind-blowing thing for me. Yeah, and I think it, it, gets, it gets difficult and confusing for me when, when you extrapolate too far beyond just like the, the day-to-day life of, of a man, of, for myself, like, right. um, where, where, is, like where is my alliance, you know? Like what, what do I pledge allegiance to? Because um, I definitely, I struggle with pledging allegiance to my nation. <laughs> at the moment yeah. it doesn't really seem like there is much of one right. and it's it doesn't feel like it's a political party um i think i guess for me it's really just the pursuit of truth and i i agree with what you said that it's kind of moved over to one side and to me that's to me that's the right and if you made me choose i would say that you know i'm, I'm on the right but i think it's also deeper than that at the same yeah. at the same time it's deeper than what side are you on? And that, that can be a bit of a trap and it's an interesting one to try to navigate. Yeah. If you allow yourself to get trapped into a different kind of identity, that's equally limiting, you know, to say, that's why I think I resist saying things like I am Christian or when, when people ask me like, Oh, which was a conversation that we, you know, it was have being had here in America and you're uh, up in Canada. I'm sure it's a thing too. It's like, Oh, uh, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? I'm like, I'm an independent, which is true. Like I'm technically registered as an independent, right? Because I don't like identifying myself with anything. I don't like saying I am this and somehow putting a conceptual lid on myself. So when I say I am Christian, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, but maybe I need to, maybe that's the sort of discomfort. Cause I was talking about how in the new age religion, there's no boundaries. Maybe one of the, as I'm talking about living a traditional life and as we're talking about these ideas and I'm talking about the need to have boundaries, maybe that's a boundary that I do need to put on myself. Yeah. And it's something that I struggle with as well is what, what is the line where I say, no, actually I am this. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you, if you made me choose, would you rather wear a mask or not wear a mask? I'm going to say, no, I don't want to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and what what is that line? I think a lot of men are probably asking this as well. Like, what is that line where you you say no? Because I feel like the we're lo- we're losing ground quite rapidly. And you know, in BC where I live, masks are mandated in all public spaces. So if you don't wear one, you can get a massive fine and get removed from the store, and all these all these bad things can happen to you. And I, up until that point, I didn't wear a mask at all. And now I'm forced to wear one. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I felt at first, when I first had to put it on, I was really, really mad about it. And a couple of months have gone by and it's kind of just become more normal. And I've accepted, I've accepted it, even though I, in my heart, I'm, I'm like, this is wrong. 
it's like what what is that line where you just say enough, right? I will. I've been grappling with this as well, and, and uh, when we get off this conversation, I will send you a link to a website where you can buy any number. Like they have literally hundreds of subversive masks that say like in big bold letters like obey, comply, <laughs> you know, PCR tests are fake. You know, hmm. I get pinged for that one. But you know, like and, but, and all these and like ones that like it's a gray one with that NPC kind of nose and mouth. You know what I mean? All these oh, ones. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. And there's literally hundreds of them. And and like they're really, really subversive in these very creative ways. Like, you know, there's some that say like worn by worn by force, not by fear. And so I thought about getting that <laughs> well, well, it's true. But I don't want someone who's sadistic to look at that and be like, ha ha, you're forced to wear it. I want to wear one that's like the most subtle middle finger to someone. You know what I mean? When they look at it, it's like, I'm smarter than you. It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the, there are so many people that are masketarians that feel the need to police others' behavior, especially, you know, people like you and me who obviously take care of their health and have functioning immune systems. You know what I mean? And so like, it's mm-hmm. those, it, most people... Most people like for for weeks. I wore um, I wore this. Uh, I'm not sure what the name the name of the fabric. It's this really sheer fabric. It's like a really sheer mesh, and you can order it by the roll. It's the kind of thing that you would see on like a wedding gown or something like that. And for weeks, I wore this mask that's a sheer mesh. You could just breathe right through it. It was like wearing nothing at all. You know what I mean? Very obviously, yeah. you know, would do nothing to stop anything. You know what I mean? And I would, I went to the mall wearing it and I walked around and I would say that like 70 people like didn't even see it. They're just looking right past, you know what I mean? And then there were maybe 20, 20% of people would shoot me angry looks. You know what I mean? Like we're not supposed to be wearing that. That's very safe, but they wouldn't say anything. And, right. then, and then 10% of the, 10% of the people, always guys, always guys with, with one exception, actually at a store that there are a couple of girls working in stores. They're like, that's really cool. But they would kind of like look at me in this knowing kind of way. And so it's just 20% of people that are paying attention that I just want to troll. You know what I mean? So I'll send that to you because there are some really brilliant options on there. And that's a good way for me. I'm to definitely not. Yeah, exactly. To stay in integrity. Um, I don't want to be out of integrity. You know, if I don't believe in this, but if I have to do it to not go to jail, how do I maintain that balance? <laughs> that sounds like a great option. Definitely gonna have to take you up on that for sure. Okay, yeah. I've just been doing the, uh, the the improper mask wearing, so just having like my nose sticking out or half my nose sticking out, walking around like that, and having people stare at me. Let's <laughs> <laughs> make them confront you. you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like what's great about this is they technically there's nothing to to ping you on. Like, why well, you don't like my mask? I'm supposed to wear it. You know, there's ones that say like I don't actually want to wear this. I'm just here to be, buy groceries. You know, there's more neutral ones and stuff. <laughs> There's some that definitely yeah go with a more a more hard edge in this refined way. Like it depends on how blatant you want to be about it, right? So as we're looking towards the towards the future, where do you see masculine revival going, or what are you hoping to build with it? I heard you say about different groups and a business. Like, what does that look like to the extent that you want to talk about it? Yeah. So for me, right now. My, my main goal is, is really just to stay in the game, um, keep, keep creating content, keep writing, keep sharing. And uh, I'm, I'm trying not to take it too seriously because sometimes I fall into the trap of, of getting really, really worked up about it because I've actually, I've, I've wanted this for a long time. I, like I said, I've been pursuing personal growth for nine years and 
I used to think all the time about getting interviewed on podcasts and having an audience and building an online business and doing courses and coaching and writing eBooks and traveling and being a, being a speaker and a presenter and an author and all these kind of things. And, um, to be honest, I would love, I would love to do all those things one day, but I'm for me right now, it's very much about just continuing to do what I'm doing. Um, and to let, to let things come to me to, I I have a very, I have a very good relationship with my audience and I'm very much, as much as I'm talking, I'm also listening a lot and I'm letting them tell me what they want to see from me. So I've just been running polls and trying to get a, a pulse on like what, okay, you guys are all here. What, what is it that you want from me next? And there seems to be some energy for, uh, for an ebook on dating from a traditional perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I have a lot of experience now doing men's groups in person. So I can definitely see myself doing a men's group. Um, there's, there's so many different directions I could go, but right now it's just continue creating and continue listening. I think that's really exciting to hear that you're kind of discovering it as you go. Like you don't really have any goal for it in that way. It's kind of this adventure that you get to go on. Yeah. I I really don't know where I'm going to end up with it. Um, I, I know I'm deeply passionate about it. I know that my purpose lies in this direction for sure. Uh, Something to, something to do with masculinity relationships, all, all, the, all these things that we've been talking about here, I, I feel like this is my this is my calling in life, and this is where I really want to plant my flag. And and at the same time, I I don't fully know where I'm going to end up with it, and I'm just staying on the pulse and staying curious and staying open minded. And yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. Where would it go in your wildest dreams if it went somewhere incredible? I, I would say the level of influence that you know you know JP Sears. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh yeah. Awaken, Awaken with JP or like Elliot Hulse or uh, Aubrey Marcus, like guys like that. Success at that level where, you know, maybe it's like a multi, multi-million dollar business. You've got a family and you just really crushed life and you're also making a huge impact. That, that would be, that would be like my, my big dream is just to, I really want to look back at the end of my life and just say that I gave my all and that I, that I took my story and I, I really squeezed every ounce of purpose and meaning and fulfillment out of it that I could and um, that I turned it into something beautiful. That, that's, that's, that's really my goal. So just to have as big of an effect and an impact as I can and to leave something behind me that I'm proud of. That sounds like a masculine revival to me. <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, where can people go to find out more about you and what you do? It's just Masculine Revival on Instagram, at Masculine Revival. Is there plans for a website or anything more in the future? It, it will definitely come. It's coming soon. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. This has been fantastic. It's been really nice to connect with someone who shares the road with me. Uh, we've walked through a lot of the same spaces, the New Age community, travel, the men's healing communities, you with the Samurai Brotherhood, myself with the Mankind Project. It's like we've walked very similar roads to a very similar place. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and I really appreciate the opportunity. I definitely have come to see you as a friend, Will. I appreciate you. I appreciate you also. And I, I see you as a friend as well. And uh, I've got a birthday coming up. 
at the end of this month. And uh, I know you and your girlfriend invited me over for a, a Zoom dinner and I would actually like to take you up on that. Oh, let's do it. Awesome. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.